the world ended. That was recorded before, you know, the happening in March of 2020. Um, so that April date is no longer valid. Of course, Brinkwood is having its... Brinkwood did have its Kickstarter uh, September 15th, 2020, which, from my perspective, is upcoming, but from your perspective, listener, could be in the past. Maybe you know things I don't. Maybe you know everything turned out okay. I envy you. Um, Yeah, so Brinkwood Kickstarter, September 15th, 2020. Um, Yeah, you know, none of the game is... None of the content of Brinkwood is at all related or topical to the reasons that I have to record this little update to put in front of the episode. It's just a funny coincidence. Nothing topical uh, at all. Um, Just take some time out of your day to maybe tell your family members you love them. Or, you know, give them a hug. Alright, here we are with uh, an interview by Sponsored by Nobody for Brinkwood, a San Gennaro co-op project. I am Devin, the interviewer. And on the internet, we have... I'm Peter. I'm Eric. All right. So, Eric, we have you here for Brinkwood, a Forged in the Dark uh, tabletop game that you're going to be kickstarting April to mid-April, right? Yeah, April 15th, I think, is the day we've set. So, barring any unforeseen catastrophes, uh, look for us on tax day. Yeah, that's going to be great. As soon as you launch, some other big project's going to come on by. That's happened to the last couple people I know. <laughs> it always seems to be the, the, the trial by fire, right? Right, right. Um, I've, uh, I've already... We, we've already kind of scooched things back because another Forge in the Dark project uh, is running in March, and um, I, we just didn't want to step on each other's toes. So Yeah, it's, it's the eternal struggle, the balancing act. So, uh, let's talk a bit about Brinkwood. Could you give us, you know, kind of right now, the elevator's pitch for it? Uh, sure. So, yeah. So, Brinkwood is a Forged in the Dark game. Um, it's about, uh, basically, you play as this group of brigands, uh, bandits, revolutionaries, rebels, who uh, live in this world uh, that is dominated by vampires. Uh, and it's kind of a medieval setting, Uh the actual uh, genre we call it castle punk um so it's it's you know it's very castlevania it's very bloodborne and basically the whole idea of it is um it's robin hood ish where you're out in the forest uh you're making plans you're raiding the vampires stealing from the rich giving to the poor uh but at the same time you're also trying to kind of build a movement and build a rebellion by working with other factions and other groups of people uh, who have kind of been at this a lot longer than you and uh, have some ideas about how things should go. All right, cool. And yeah, Eric, why don't you give us a bit of a background on yourself in the TTRPG uh, hobby, we'll call it. Uh, You know, have you done any kind of projects before? Or um, I know you're working with the San Gennaro Co-op, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, sure. Um, So I've been active... Well, I've been active on and off since I'd say like 2011, 2012. Uh, my first big project was a game known as Crone, uh, which was another tabletop RPG that had kind of card-based mechanics. Mm. Um, and that was on Kickstarter for a little while. Um, did pretty well. Um, I had a lot of fun with that. 
And then I kind of took a break from tabletop role playing for a while. Um, I also did a card game with a friend of mine who's the principal designer uh, called Crown of Tines. Uh, and we had a lot of fun with that. Um, and now I'm kind of just now getting back into the scene since like 2018-ish, uh, March 2018. Uh, I got back into kind of the itch.io scene. Um, yeah, itch is amazing. I love what they're doing. Exactly. And like there was a lot of game jams going on and I just saw this game jam and I was like, oh, I, I remember this idea I had. Why don't I try and get it out there real quick? And then it kind of kind of took off a little bit um, from there. Perfect. So this game is Forge in the Dark. So we should probably bring some people up to speed on what that is, which requires bringing up people up to speed on a few other things, I guess, if they're not familiar with things outside of uh, maybe the, the traditional game area. So what is Forge in the Dark? And what was the appeal of using that for this game? Uh, yeah, so Forge in the Dark is the uh, the SRD, uh, the standard reference document that describes the system used by a game called Blades in the Dark, made by John Harper. Um, it's also been used in quite a few other modifications and more official games from Evil Hat, um, stuff like Scum and Villainy, um, uh, Girl by Moonlight, I think, recently just got tapped uh, for Evil Hat. Um, and it's basically the system where uh, it's a dice pool based system. Uh, you roll a certain number of dice, you take the highest die, and uh, if you roll the one through three, things get worse. If you roll the four through five, uh, you do it, but there's a consequence, and you roll a six, you succeed. Um, but what's really engaging to me about it and why I really chose it for this project is that it layers together and interlaces both a very heavy metagame component where in uh, Blaze in the Dark, you're essentially like a gangster in this steampunk city and you're trying to yeah, kind of claw uh, your way through the underworld. It's it's uh, crime people and you run, a, you run a gang of fellow crime people and it's also very heavily inspired by like Thief and uh, I think that game Dishonored. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny because um, like... It, it definitely wears its inspiration uh, from Dishonored on its sleeve. But at the same time, uh, John Harper wrote an earlier game called like Railjacks um, that kind of predated Dishonored. So there's kind of that interesting interplay where like of, I guess, just gestalt, you know, steampunk slash, I guess, whale punk uh, aesthetic kind of coming together there. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, for reference for people who might um, know a little bit about this, Forge in the Dark is kind of a spin-off of Power by the Apocalypse, which if you listen to anything we do, you know that mm. it's this whole thing that we really like, and it's very good at kind of putting out a nice tight gameplay loop where everyone's sort of involved and kind of spinning the spotlight around on each other. And as far as I know, we haven't had a chance to do Forge in the Dark yet. We've been putting things on the back burner, but it, it follows that same kind of formula and also adds a nice little background uh, framework where, you know, you run the city and your gang and your character. And there's a lot kind of, there's a lot of little moving parts you can care about. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny. Uh, I think when Forge in the Dark was first being, or Blaze in the Dark was first coming out, it was marketed as a powered by the apocalypse game. Uh, even though like so much of it is radically different. 
Um, but they're both, you know, fiction first games. I, and um, yeah, I, I've run into that conversation a lot of times where people where, where I'll say, oh, you know, Powered by Apocalypse game, you know, like Blades in the Dark or like The Veil or like yeah, yeah. Fellowship. And someone will go, well, technically, actually, Forge in the Dark no. isn't Powered by It is. It, it definitely is. is. It, it, John Harper said it is. It's, you know, it, that's it's where it's... Powered by the Apocalypse isn't playbooks and 2D6. It's it's a philosophy. Right. And how you run the game and stuff. And Force and Dark follows it, and it's great. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that, that it's... Is, that's my big complaint. They're both great. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they both come out of, you know, that Forge scene and GNS theory and all that, so... Oh, God, yeah, it even says Forged forged in the dark yeah yeah that's yeah, cute yeah. if that was intentional hats off uh i i definitely think it is um yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go i didn't know that so uh, let's pivot then <laughs> uh so for brinkwood uh what are the themes of the game as we just kind of went over a bit power of the apocalypse force in the dark they're big on themes and kind of the big narrative push these games kind of push a certain story and push a certain series of emotions and uh, loops to them so what are the themes of brinkwood you know what is the world like and why are the characters sort of doing what they're up to yeah so i guess like kind of like the big themes are i i always think of it in terms of like questions like what questions are the game is the game asking of the players um for brinkwood uh the questions are uh kind of what it takes in order to organize a rebellion and in order to achieve victory. Um, there's a big thing in revolutionary fiction that it's often about this idea of like, you become the monster or you replicate the power that you seek to destroy. Yeah. Um, they'll, they'll, I, I've seen it a thousand times. So they'll do this kind of like cycle of abuse metaphor for revolution. Right. It is endlessly depressing. Yeah, it's very depressing. When, it's when highly sort of, inaccurate. You know, when, when done sort of out of the box without any thought, where it's like it turns out both sides were it were able to become vampires. Right. Yeah. I I, I do not subscribe to that theory of history, um, and I do not think that's a fun game. Um, so I wanted to make a revolution or rebellion game where no, you are you are a hundred percent better than the thing you're destroying, and you are going to work together with people to make that world. And like, I think part of it in that revolutionary fiction is the conflict is supposed to come from the idea that like you're working, uh, it's a bunch of people who hate each other working together. Um, which is another thing I really hate. Uh, so, sorry, not to be super negative. No, no, it's, but, um, it's fine. I'm, I'm thinking of one specific example of a revolutionary game where you work with people who hate you and it turns out you're just as bad as the rev as the big evil empire and it'll it'll go nameless yeah, yeah. um <laughs> it's zeroed in in my mind right right um i like i think you know ultimately a game can be in service of the players and you, you do what you want with it um but i wanted to design something where no even within an ideology, say, like, you know, broadly speaking, leftism, because that's what I am. You have just this multitude of you're tendencies. Me that you're a fellow who made a game about overthrowing a bunch of power hungry people who literally drink the youth out of the people they're in control of, and you're a leftist? I know. It's crazy, right? Is that, um, that seems shocking to me. Yeah, right. Uh, but, like, even even within 
you know, that political sphere, the question is not what we're all aiming towards. Like we're all aiming at the same goal of a better world and a more egalitarian world and, you know, these sorts of things. It's just the question always boils down to how do we get there? And to me, that's always been a much more interesting question to grapple with. Uh, fire is... and gunmetal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the the butter and bullets of making different groups who share the same goals work together. That seems to be the rallying cry that keeps picking up every uh, every couple of terms. Right, right. <laughs> okay, so uh, with that in mind, what is sort of the core loop in Brinkwood? What's kind of the hook on it? Your your revolutionaries. Your I think the example used was Robin Hood. Mm -hmm. pushing back against the system so in this sense i guess it's classic robin hood the the original actual brigand and not just some nobleman so yeah, yeah what's kind of the hook in that what, what what drives people what detracts people to that so um fundamental uh to brinkwood and so fundamental that it goes on your character sheet is the idea of tragedy uh and the idea that the world has done something to you um, whether it be a specific vampire or just the nature of the world you live in, the nature of living under this weird pseudo-feudal uh, post-industrial capitalist hellscape um, has caused some tragedy in your life, which has radicalized you. Um, and kind of the, the thing I always go back to is no one, no one gets up and leaves everything behind and goes into the forest to go start making arrows and try and uh, blow up uh, vampires, you know, for no reason. There's always a reason. There's always a motivation. Um, there's always a motivation that is both personal and political mm -hmm. uh, for each character. Right. So, right. um, so when you're playing these characters, when you're kind of building them, and they're, they're people who have damage, basically, from the nature of the world they're in, um, how does the game kind of bring these people together? Because one person who's damaged doesn't necessarily make them the best sort of ally, um, mm -hmm. even with a unified goal. Yeah. Uh, the, the idea is that once you enter the forest, you swear what's known as a pact. Um, and... Uh, this, these packs are things from justice uh, to industry to beauty, and there's kind of like the ideal you're striving for, like the thing about a better future that attracts you. Um, like, for example, uh, beauty is all about, you know, bread and uh, as well as roses. The idea that even in a time of war and a time of sadness, like we should still have fun we should still throw parties. We should still celebrate our successes. Um, we should still, you know, enjoy nice things. Um, whereas industry is very much focused on the nitty gritty. Okay, what does it take to build this rebellion? What do you need? What do you need? You know, what what are the logistical obstacles we face? How do we go out and get what people need in order to get them on board, in order to keep the movement going? Um and so because you are sworn to these oaths, to these pacts, um, they're what kind of grants you um, the, the allegiance of the Fae and uh, powers uh, as well your kind of 
masks as well as their powers and that sort of thing. All right, that's pretty. That's a pretty good compelling reason. Also, it means each player, while they ostensibly have the same goal, they also have their own specific way and motivations for doing things. Right. Exactly. Especially if they go on what I assume is the equivalent of runs in this game, like shadow runs. They'll yeah. Have well, motivations for how to complete them and how to kind of action them. Yeah, because um, like there's two layers to it where yeah you kind of have these runs. I think Blades in the Dark calls them scores. I yeah. call them forays, where you're actually going out in the world and doing things. But then you know there's the downtime campaign level metagame because um, it's a it's a dark fantasy forest vampire society. I would be a thousand percent okay with people calling like you know doing a hit on vampire society a shadow run. Like, <laughs> by moonlight, we're doing a shadow run. Right, right, exactly. It is 100% um, appropriate. Mm -hmm. But one thing I wanted to kind of get away from was uh, in Blades in the Dark, and I, I don't know if this is by design or if this is just the way it's played a lot of the time. Um, as the game goes on, you kind of just keep doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, like you go up against bigger and bigger targets, and maybe you ostensibly have more turf or you have more people in your gang. But like your motivation doesn't really change. There's really no end game. There's no end game, exactly. Yeah, Whereas in this, that is a problem. Yeah. Without having played Forge in the Dark, it's something I've seen in a couple of them that I've read. Where once you kind of get the core loop down in the early game, it's that forever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that can definitely be how it goes. And in a lot of those games I've played, like at some at some point, you just kind of peter out, and it's just like, okay, we've got enough coin we've got enough wealth we've got enough power that um it's time to retire from being a shadow runner yeah i guess it's time to retire um and become the oppressor no exactly. um that's that, that is a key problem i've talked about a lot of times and i bring up shadow run because it's it's the original example like adventure right, you're exactly. supposed to retire or die eventually but Shadowrun, mm -hmm. you do two or three good scores and because of the way modern shadow run and even classic shadow run writes itself you're never really doing something for a purpose and you're never trying to achieve a goal. It's just, I'm rich enough now to do whatever I mm -hmm. wanted. Goodbye. I don't need violence anymore. <laughs> so long. <laughs> yeah, see you jackasses later. I'm going to go buy an island or I'm going to go and bail out whatever problem I had with money. Right, right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny the different ways people kind of fix that problem. Um, I think in I Hunt, live uh, the idea is like no, the grind, the grind is forever. There yeah. is only the grind. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you can't escape that loop. There is no yeah. getting enough money at the end of the day. Right, right. Um, I think there's like an expansion about getting enough money and like all the problems that brings, or uh, all the layers on top of that. That's um, fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So look for that. Um, but in in so in Brinkwood, it's a it's a staged thing where as you as you move up in tier, uh, which is a term borrowed from Forge the Dark, um, your motivations and your goals change. Where like at the lower tiers, you're just trying to survive. You're completely underground. You know, you're basically just trying to keep fed, keep from getting sick, keep from uh, you know getting discovered. Um, and then as you move on, the idea is, okay, well, now we can start, you know, hitting back, you know, we can start, uh, you know, doing assassinations and that sort of thing. 
And then you get to the layer where, okay, well, we've done a couple of, we've done a couple things ourselves. We, we've reached the limits of what we can do alone. What can we start doing for other people? What can we start doing in villages and communities to kind of address their needs? Um, there's all these other factions uh, in, in the world, you know, how can we help them out so they help us out? And then with the ultimate goal being, uh, I think, like stage three, tier three, um, being open rebellion, where you're basically fighting, uh, I, I think, what Che Guevara called the transition from guerrilla war to conventional warfare. Yeah, the idea that a soldier doesn't make a great peacekeeper. Right, right. Where, like, you enter this phase of, like, out-and-out warfare, and then at the end of which there's an epilogue where you get together with your allies and you talk about, you know, what comes next in terms of uh, the world you've built and the world you're striving for. So this game actually does have an endgame phase in Tier 3? Mm-hmm, exactly. That, that, that's been something that I've been kind of disappointed in a few games I've looked at that do that three-tier thing where it's like, you're just starting out and doing street stuff, and then it's like you're doing mid-tier getting your feet and then the end game like the tier three you're supposed to kind of rally against the system and take down like the 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 big threat or the 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 sort of meat grinder and Mm -hmm. tier three just doesn't happen like you get there and you're allowed to take out a part of the the oppressive society but you're never allowed to take it all down because you're supposed to play the game forever yeah no that's that's not how you're supposed to play brinkwood at all oh that's Um, so satisfying then there's there's definitely an end goal in mind uh it might take a while to get there uh and in fact i'm running a campaign now and like one of the big conversations we have is because we're in like kind of that tier one tier two area and they've started like knocking off vampires and like taking down some pretty powerful foes and the question becomes you know okay so we've killed so and so but we haven't really fixed that hasn't fixed the problem has it you know they're just going to bring in another vampire they're going to bring in you know, uh, another, you know, group of troops from the continent. Would you and... say it's an acknowledgement that um, empires aren't run by like one great person or one singular person? Like, right. Say, the idea is like, you don't, you don't kill the big bad guy and his soldiers pack it up and go home. Yeah, like it's fun to shoot Hitler, but someone else right. might be Hitler. The, the, the yeah, system, Goebbels is it, in the wings. You yeah, know? The system is built in such a way to put a person like him right in place after he's gone. You have to tear apart the system. Yeah, yeah, that, you that, have to... Funnily enough, that is something that's explored in a recent Powered by the Apocalypse uh, book, uh, the Third Fellowship book, Rebellion, where instead of having one evil overlord like in Star Wars, or instead of having just open land like in Star Trek where you're exploring space... The mm-hmm. Empire cannot be destroyed by taking down the figureheads because someone else will just come in place. You have right. to leverage and rip apart the resources and the crux points of the machine. Yeah, exactly. So it's nice to see that kind of game is coming into power and becoming popular and being something that designers are, you know, across the spectrum are actually starting to put into practice. That's that's an that's an exciting kind of game to play in where you're not trying to shoot the Scarlet Empress and Exalted. You you got to pull apart and like what's the word? Uh rehabilitate, you know, the empire. Right, yeah. Um and everyone it's... has to be on board with that. The population has yeah. to be on board with wanting it. Yeah, you don't you don't just shoot the emperor and like all the villagers are like, okay, well, I guess like that's the end of that then. I you know. Yes, we'll open up healthcare clinics. 
Right, yeah. <laughs> that emperor was the only guy stopping us. Right, exactly. Cool. That's excellent. So, um, tell us about the inspirations for this game. Um, well, so... Because you mentioned at Castlevania the first... and Metroidvania-style stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's really where like I borrowed the aesthetic from. Uh, the idea, uh, I call it Castle Punk. Actually, a friend of mine uh, coined the term. Um, but the idea is it's this sort of aesthetic where it's very medieval uh, and it's, you know, gothic architecture and it's, you know, very classic gothic. But at the same time, clearly you don't really care about history. Um, you want, you know, industrial machines. You want big gear works. Uh, you want some of that bloodborne, uh, you know, kind of eldritch nonsense going on. Uh, so you want like to mix a whole bunch of different fashion, uh, fashion styles and aesthetic choices together. Anachronistic, um, even. Anachronistic, exactly. Yeah. Um, and but at the other part of that, uh, and one that was very important to me is like we call everything punk these days, like you know, uh, you know, cyberpunk, steampunk, uh, yeah. castle punk in this sense. But the second half of that actually means something. Um, and what it means to me is that you're bringing a punk lens to these things. You're not here to, you know, drink the blood of vampire, uh, of virgins and uh, soliloquize in castles about how depraved and how melancholy you are. You know, it's not that kind of Byron-esque sesh, uh, thing. You're here to tear down the system you're here to fuck shit up you know yeah um which is it's something that a lot of the, the stuff that's using punk genre is actually doing these days in the ttrpg scene like it's it's nice to actually see us move on from and i'm gonna keep right. bringing it up Shadowrun and cyberpunk 2020 where the most <clears throat> punk thing about them was that they sold you like the different matching pair of nikes with your flamethrower to go kill people for the government or the big company and they get paid you money like an uber driver right yeah exactly <laughs> like it, an uber driver <laughs> i mean that was that, that's always been my my problem with cyberpunk 2020 and shadowrun you're an uber driver for murder for a company that won't pay you a healthcare plan and is using you like a puppet <laughs> and it's been like that since first edition and nobody wants to talk about it it's it's nice that games that are doing the punk thing are actually starting to acknowledge that and kind of push into it right exactly yeah yes, i 100 agree who in the background is posting I Hunt is a great example where it actually took that of concept course. at face value. It's like, yeah, what does it look like? What, you got to kind of read what does the What does the gig economy look like? Yeah. yeah. What does Shadowrun look like if you're not a bunch of people who just reskinned D&D to have a dungeon crawl but in an office building? What, what would a <laughs> right. Shadowrunner's life be? And I Hunt answers that. It, it, it wouldn't be awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, there's serious yeah. problems with how Mr. Johnson operates and why <laughs> Shadowrunners should probably not be taking those jobs because because they're going to get screwed in the end every time. Right, right, exactly. That's my uh, mandatory rant about uh, the T TTRPG trad game cyberpunk games <laughs> and how they're basically just D&D &D and no one wants to admit it. Uh, boy, I mean, it's funny um, because, like, you're not wrong 100%. Yeah. Like, there's, I, I haven't read whatever the latest version of Shadowrun. Oh, it gets bad. The, the latest Cyberpunk one, Red um, is. The, be the best thing you can aspire to in Shadowrun, they say in the new edition, is to be the Mr. Johnson. Oh, Jesus. Oh, That's. 
that's that's fucking bleak um but like that was that was my problem with blades in the dark was like yeah uh at the end of the day maybe your gang will start oppressing people and won't that be fun right (laughs) it's like there's another forge in the dark that did that too a bit and also didn't have an end game and i was like oh no I mean, at least in Blades in the Dark, you have the excuse that, like, you're literally playing the bad guys. You're crime but, like, people. You're crime people. You're criminals, you know. Uh, criminals who want to be criminals, not criminals because they, you know, are affected by certain material conditions in the playing, world they live in. Playing crime people is an under-recognized and underappreciated genre of RPG. Like, Stars Without Numbers, Blades in the Dark, Scum and Villainy, uh, basically West End game Star Wars the whole point mm-hmm. of it was you were greasy raccoon crime people going around committing <laughs> crimes because you're too awful to hold down a desk job. <laughs> uh, and like, there's no politics in games. Remember? Right. Like, like those games were upfront and naked about your character was just Garbo. Yeah. Even if you yeah. didn't want to like straight up admit it's like star Wars, you could be a Jedi, but all the West End game Star Wars, like, mushes and muds and actual plays and stories I've heard are like, we're a bunch of Corellian smugglers with a slicer on board, and we're going right, to work yeah. for the Black Sun Syndicate and do crime. And it's like, dude, <laughs> do you want to overthrow the Empire? We're going to sell them weapons and use those funds to buy slaves. <laughs> and it's like, all right. Not we're going to kill be... Jedi. <laughs> they, they, you wouldn't even see Jedi most of the time. It'd just be like, yeah, you know how Han Solo was kind of a good guy? We're not him. <laughs> For Han Solo to be special, we have to be actual scum and villainy. We're, we're Greedo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that. That's how every West End Star Wars game I've ever read about has traditionally gone with that D6 system. Where it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. we're just crime people working for crime organizations, drug smuggling, and, you know, the, the Empire's evil and fascist and is always going to be the worst person in the room. So even us doing crime doesn't look as bad because who the fuck cares if we steal from Nazis? They're Nazis. Right. This and, goes back to, like, how, like, everyone played Edge of the Empire, but no one played Edge of Rebellion. You know? Exactly. Or the same thing happened with um, Traveler. And uh, that Warhammer 40k oh, game that wasn't Warhammer 40k that Peter Dark likes. Heresy, holy shit! No, no, shit. no, no uh, it, it's a knockoff. Uh, oh, um, Golden Suns. Uh, God, I know exactly what Peter, you're talking about. That game, it's like Warhammer 40k. You play traitor, rogue traitor, not rogue traitor. Oh, it, not it, rogue traitor. War Zone. Not War Zone. Okay, it's Baroque fantasy. The ships looks like big cathedrals in space, and it's clearly a Warhammer 40k and Dune ripoff. And you wanted us to play it. Come on, Pete. Golden Suns? Sons of Gold? I'll get back to you on this. Fine. Yeah, we'll get, we'll come back to Kevin it. Crawford like... literally named a module of Stars Without Numbers after it, and it was all about being greasy, cutthroat, money-grubbing, awful people. That's funny. I, I mean, the only thing I hear ever hear about Stars Without Number is just it's like universe generation tools like no one talks about actually playing it so stars about numbers <laughs> and basically everything from c nominee games that kevin crawford done does is an excellent toolkit to put into any game if you're generating stuff like the right. system agnostic tools are astounding but in stars about numbers you're garbage you're hot garbage <laughs> you're hot garbage and you have a loan yeah of course well that's that's the classic is you start with a loan and you're 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 big 
your big thing is paying off your mortgage. And that's heavily inspired <laughs> by those old games like Western Star Wars or Traveler or that game I keep mentioning that no one knows the name to. Mm -hmm. Like that has been traditionally the crime people genre of game. And yeah, yeah. Definitely. Forge in the Dark is just the narrative version of that. Mm -hmm. You're your greasy, awful, grubby, cutthroaty, garbage raccoon people. Well, not in this game. Not in this Forge yes. in the Dark game. <laughs> you, you are, you are normal people who have had a bad thing trademark TM asterisk. You have damage happen to them. D. I, you know, you're saying damage, but like, I, I kind of want to get away from that because, like, well, um. Blades in the Dark has this thing called trauma that I really hate, yeah, uh, so where the idea is you break over the course of your career that like I'm not that. a fan of. Um, to give you context, and listeners, I, yeah. I, I've kind of given this this idea before, damage with a capital D isn't you're traumatized or broken by the world and it makes you who you are. Damage is, you know, the world sucks. Like, you might be a great ah. person, you have a lot of stuff going on, but you still have 60k in student loans, and that's going to haunt you till your 50s. You know, it's not like a Greek tragedy or like a special episode of Friends where someone tries to commit suicide. It's just, it's damage, man. You pick it up by just living. So so kind of more like like economic baggage. Economics, social, personal. Uh, the, the example mm -hmm. I traditionally use to describe damage is Vampire the Requiem. Like... The second edition game, where the way it frames vampires in Requiem isn't that you're a special supernatural predator who's beyond people, who's losing touch with humanity. They treat it like, yeah, you're someone with cancer, but the cancer lets you, you know, suplex a car. Like, mm. you know, your problems are no different. Like, you as a vampire are no different from your friends who aren't vampires. It's just... You still got to make rent. Yeah, the yeah. way the world has kind of given you a burden or thrown your life for a loop is just different with another capital d you know you have damage gotcha. we all have gotcha. it vampires have a different version of it and it totally and ineffably and forever deflates the vampire should just walk out into the sun and end their lives because at the end of the day in requiem vampires are just human beings they're just you man you didn't change right. all that much mm -hmm. but that's what I, that, that's kind of what Brinkwood is kind of saying to me with, with the way you're describing people who have this this sort of life-changing thing to them or, or the way the world has altered them. It seems like they've gone through a bit of damage and that's kind of helped focus what they want. Yeah, exactly. It's it's very much um it's very much the idea that like things that you have reached the point where it no longer makes sense to you to keep living your life normally. Yeah, you. Um, the, the call to that, the call to make a difference has happened for the character. You know, mm -hmm. you go through life thinking, well, someone's going to make a difference, and now it no longer makes sense for you not to be that person. Like, right, you've, you've exactly. actualized, or it's become crystallized in your mind. Right. 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 Cool. The the the, uh, the words I always kept coming back to, I, I think it was someone. I, I don't know where the quotes from. But it's something someone said to me, which was, let this radicalize you further rather than lead you to despair. Yeah. And, like, that's kind of the crux of the characters in Breakwood, is it's people who have let their damage, as you say, uh, radicalize them rather exactly. than falling into despair. And that sounds like a really compelling way to run a character. Like, that, that sounds like an excellent kind of series of motivations that are both very easy to slip into and also, like, very flavorful and very rich in like role play with other characters because everyone's going to have a different reason why they've been kind of you know self-actualized 
Exactly. Okay. So, um, we've talked about inspirations, and I don't know if we really got that deep into it, but that's fine. Um, did mm-hmm. we ever get into the mechanics? Have we talked about that no, yet? We, we can <laughs> talk about that a little bit. <laughs> so, so for, for a background in Forge in the Dark, just for listeners, I'll, I'll kind of give my spiel and you can give yours on Forge in the Dark, but brief intro. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have characters, you have a playbook, just like in Powered by the Apocalypse, and you also have a gang or an organization that has their own playbook to kind of flavor what they're all about. And there are moves and actions you take that kind of drive the narrative forward. The, the, the storyteller or the referee or the host doesn't really take actions. They constantly take reactions to what the players are doing. And the spotlight is swung from character to character as they kind of radically change the story and all kind of growth and bonds and interactions happen. Is that a fair summary mm-hmm. of kind of Forge in the Dark, the basics? Yeah, yeah, I would definitely say so. so um, uh, yeah, add anything you want to add. And then my follow-up question is, what does Brinkwood take from that framework and do differently? Exactly. That That's kind of what I was going to lead into was Perfect. like uh, the idea that that is, that is very much the core of it. But I think mechanically the big thing we do differently is that we kind of break uh blades in the dark forge in the dark down into its like even more basal components and then kind of let players assemble them a little more so like you say uh you know each player has uh kind of who they are as a character and also a playbook uh whereas in this game everyone has who they are as a character and a mask that kind of changes from session to session uh based on essentially what the player wants to do or have their brigand do, or like what's called for in the situation. So a mask um, is basically a mode of play you decide on at the start of the session or at the start of the adventure. Uh, that's how I used to run it. Um, these days, how I typically end up running it is that your mask is decided when you put it on. So you can be in the middle of a session and be like, hmm, things are really starting to go to hell and it looks like we're going to have to fight soon. I want to pull out the mask of violence and put it on. Yeah, exactly. It's it's deciding how you're going to enact change, right? Right, exactly. Cool. Alright. Um, and also, uh, you talked about like the kind of the crew level playbook. In this game, the focus is very much less on like your crew that you're kind of putting together and more your coalition, your your rebellion, all the kind of other factions that exist in the world that you are essentially stitching together into uh, a coherent movement so so it, you it sounds like then instead of putting together a crew like in uh, blades in the dark instead what you're doing is you're taking a small nascent rebellion and you're nurturing it and feeding it and protecting it until it can kind of mature right right but like so where in blades in the dark mechanically you know you would take certain special abilities based on being uh, I don't know, I forget, uh, the assassins or the cultists or whatever. In this, you go to uh, the Fletchers, who are the people who like make bows and want to keep the knowledge of like how to deal with vampires alive. And if you help them out, they will teach you how to do, you know, bow things. And they will, you know, help you out as they can. And you will take kind of a portion of their playbook and kind of stitch it onto yours. So, and you might go somewhere else for to someone else and take another piece of what they have to offer. 
uh, in return for aiding them. So in, ex in, this, in that example here, the Fletchers don't join the rebellion, but they impart their special knowledge or lesson onto you and make the rebellion more like them. Uh, it's kind of like I, I come from an anarchist uh, organizing tradition where the idea is that um, everyone who is kind of part of the movement has a say in it. Um, we have like specific mechanics for things that are called spokes, which are basically people who speak for their specific faction. So they are on one level joining the rebellion, but they're also kind of managing their commitment. So as the rebellion lines up more with what they want and, you know, helps them accomplish their objectives, they're willing to give more and more and commit more fully. Um, ah, so it's a game of who you're more in sync with. Yeah, who you're more in sync with and who you kind of want to give priority to. Okay, so the rebellion will shape itself around the people that you help out and who kind of give their contribution to and will right. kind of look more like them depending on who you prioritize. Exactly. Cool. That seems pretty dynamic. Makes for a lot of different outcomes. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, like, the central core outcome is always going to be the same that, like, you know, the vampires are gone, capitalism's gone, you know... The, the thing is, like, what comes next? You know, you put the you know, industrial unions in charge, you know, and might start to look more like syndicalism. Uh, you put the agriculturists in charge, maybe it starts to look more like, you know, kind of agrarian, communist, utopiast. Utop so there was yeah. a, there, there's a concept, there's a Power by the Apocalypse game line. I, I think it's called The Veil, um, where after The Veil came out, there's actually two other games that came out afterwards that are their own independent games, but they're all connected and they're actually natural evolutions of each other. So you go from cyberpunk to kind of sci-fi-ish to essentially transhuman biopunk, but mm -hmm. you can actually do each game one after another and show how the world and the setting and the history of that stuff has changed mm -hmm. in between those three levels. Is mm -hmm. it possible if Brinkwood you know, has, has enough hooks in it and you get enough ideas for it, to in the future make a kind of middle game that's like, all right, well, you defeated the vampires in Brinkwood. This is Brinkwood afterwards. And how you won the rebellion originally shapes what the society looks like now and the different, whatever hook up the hook for the game would be. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely have that percolating in the back of my head. Um, I think, you know, there's so many different directions you can take that story where, you know, it can be about just like rebuilding the country. Um, and I see that as almost more of like a, uh, what is it? A quiet year style game. Yeah. Um, there could be something where like you're, you don't, the vampires aren't just a problem in your neighborhood. They're a problem elsewhere. So it could be about um, the idea of kind of going to other countries and helping uh, other places stage their own rebellions mm. or stage their own overthrows. Globetrotting. Um, right, exactly. I would, I, I, my dream is really that people would almost write their own settings for this. Um, and like, I'd like to see it, you know, uh, vampires in, you know, a Filipino style setting uh, uh, being overthrown or vampires in you know um a west african style setting or so uh you know i, I like the... games that i'm able to plug into ongoing stories and to give mm -hmm. you an example of what i mean is 
you could run Brinkwood from what you're describing to me as a game about a world overtaken by vampires and overthrowing them and having this new society. And then you could immediately transition to another game system using the setting you've established to do another kind of story. Because Brinkwood is about how the rebellion story happened. But what right. you do afterwards is maybe move into something like, I don't know, to, to give an example because we were talking about it. The next game we play in that same setting might be I Hunt and talk this talk about, you know, people oh, who yeah. are still taking out supernatural things, but it's gotten a little bit dour, you know, a bit into the future, or move to something like Iron Sworn, where you're maybe a group of lone, you know, hunters or adventure people who are going through the setting you established in Brinkwood and dealing with the fallout of it. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, definitely. It, it sounds like Brinkwood, even if you run through it on its own from start to finish, sets up uh, the, the history and the backstory of a rich world that you can come back to for other supernatural stories. Heck, if you wanted, you know, use something like Urban Shadows to represent being the different supernaturals in this new balanced world. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it definitely ends in a state where not everything's perfect, uh, but like things have gotten better. It so, has an end game, but doesn't end the story. Right, yeah. It doesn't end the world, exactly. so to speak. And that's really cool. That's something that I've personally been pursuing in games we've been looking at, too, to kind of have games that you can slot into ongoing living worlds and stories and kind of slot out when you're done, because the game itself is built in such a way to tell a certain narrative or a certain type of story, but it's not supposed to be kind of like shaping everything around it permanently in like a, like an all controlling way. More like mm-hmm. kind of how, if you play, um, I don't know if, if you play like West end game, star Wars, inevitably all your stories are going to be a, about crime people or space wizards. Like inevitably mm-hmm. the whole world is going to be based about it. You can't really shift it to something lighter afterwards. Yeah, yeah, and I, I definitely want their. I, I want this to be a game that evolves and changes, yeah. and you're able to tell different stories with, and when you're done with it, you know, put it away and tell a different story in the same world, or you know, tell a different story completely differently. So I guess it's time now that we're talking about setting and story to talk about the setting. Um, is there a sort of defined setting for Brinkwood or is it more a series of important events and themes that kind of, you can kind of put your own setting onto as long as the key points are there. What is Brinkwood like in that regard? Um, there's definitely a defined setting. Uh, I believe that it's important uh, to give people like something to work with, mm-hmm. uh, even if, you know, they're going to tear it apart and build their own thing, which Absolutely. I'm hundred percent in favor of. Like if you don't, you know, if you're just picking the game off the shelf, like I should, you should have everything you need to go from the jump. And I'm really blessed to be working with uh, Brian Richmond, who's doing a lot of the setting building for us. Um, there's a number of other consultants I've worked with um, as well. Um, oh, Hybridity on Twitter uh, does a lot of our monster design. Uh, Zwater does um, a lot of our faction design. And like you have all these pieces, but the setting Brian's uh, the setting we've kind of come up with um, and Brian's kind of built out is that uh, you're in this island called Orsley that is kind of a mix between uh, Northern England, Ireland, and its aesthetic. It's a part of a larger archipelago uh, off the coast of a continent, and it's kind of in this like middle ground between. Uh, being uh, a place that was colonized, but also a place that's kind of got elements of an imperial core in and of itself. Um, And yeah, uh, that's kind of the default setting we work with. 
um, because we wanted to kind of strike that balance between um, a world where it makes sense that not everybody is already kind of beaten down and there's kind of like this history of resistance and rebellion. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's uh, the forces you're up against uh, are powerful and, you know, uh, c- kind of be able to tell a couple of different stories, not just a strictly um, anti-imperial uh, or anti-colonial one. Well, actually, like, no matter what, it's going to be anti-imperial, it's going to be anti-colonial, but... Uh, yeah, it's yeah, kind it's of just hard to get doing. away from sharpening those guillotines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... Uh, I guess I get, I guess what it is is, like, you. we wanted you to be able to tell the story of the French Revolution... And, you know, the Haitian Revolution, so to speak. Okay. So I guess it's a good segue to talk about the, you know, overwhelming powers that you're kind of up against. Tell us about, you know, the vampires. They're, they're kind of the, the core antagonistic force that gets talked about. What are they like? What, mm-hmm. are, what are they about? Um, well, uh, the vampires, uh, it was very important to me. Uh, we kind of touched on it a little bit with the Vampire, the Wacrium, and like other games like that there's kind of been this fiction that's built up around vampires where they're a metaphor for addiction or a metaphor for illness or a metaphor for, um, you know, cycles of abuse, abusive relationships. And there's like an element of pathos there with all your vampires, um, which is fine for those other games. And, you know, I like quite a few of those games. I played a lot of uh, Vampire Requiem back in the day. Um, but in this game, I wanted the vampires to cue more closely to a metaphor for just straight extractive capitalism. So the idea is not that you are a vampire because someone made you a vampire. Uh, it is you are a vampire because you chose to do so. And the way you chose to do so was by hoarding a bunch of wealth, literally. Because the coinage in the game and the way you become a vampire are very closely interlinked. Uh, it's called blood sterling. It's a alchemical mix of blood and silver that if you get a bunch of it together, melt it down, drink it, it'll turn you into a vampire. And you'll get all You're these... You're literally uh, injecting money into yourself to become someone who preys on the poor and helpless? Uh, you, well, uh, yeah, and also the blood of the poor and helpless. Y- yeah, you, you really put that on the nose there. I mean, I didn't win uh, the Sandy Pug Fuck Subtlety Award for nothing. Um, That's really on the sh- on its nose or on its sleeve. I love it. Yeah. Uh, so that means there's and no also, question that whoever's a vampire is kind of a dink. Yeah, uh, but there's also like this other element to it where um, uh, I think it's a game by um, Maria Milson. I want to say. Let me double check that. Um, there. Yeah, Maria Misson, um, called Rich Kid Problems on itch.io, uh, which I definitely recommend people check out. Um, and it's a game about playing the sons and daughters of warlords, mafia bosses, and monopolist media houses. Oh, uh, and uh, it's about trying to be a good person when you come from kind of astronomical wealth and power and influence. So uh it's important to me that you can also stop being a vampire like all you need to do is stop drinking blood and your powers will wither away and like you won't be a vampire anymore so 
we have like backgrounds and like, it's one of the more popular backgrounds is that you were raised, you know, the child of vampires. You were raised in a vampiric house. You might've drunk blood sterling. You might not have understood the full implications of it, but at some point, you know, you had that attack of conscience. You had that come to Jesus moment, that realization and decided to become a class traitor. That's Sorry, cool. that was a lot. <laughs> no, no, that's perfect. <laughs> perfect. All right, so the vampires, by and large, are pretty much, you know, the people you have to deal with because most of them, they are choosing to do this. They're not, like, compelled to do this. They're choosing to hoard exactly. power and to keep their power consciously. Exactly. Um, All right, well, yeah. the other thing you mentioned earlier was uh, fair folk in the forest for the packs and whatnot. Let's, mm -hmm. uh, let's segue into those. Tell us about those. So, yeah. So, so the Fae are um, kind of, I use them as a metaphor for theory. Uh, like if you're Praxis as a brigand and you're actually going out and doing things, the Fae are kind of the ones that are giving like structure and like kind of tethering you to an actual practicable ideology. Um, where there's different courts of Fae and they each have kind of their own ideas about how things should go. And you kind of have to deal with them. Um, and you kind of, it, it, I kind of wanted to represent the struggle of like understanding theory as kind of being akin to the struggle of understanding Fae. Like sometimes you'll read something or a Fae will tell you something that won't click right away. And you'll need to kind of experience it for yourself or like think of it a different way in order to kind of figure out what the Fae are actually trying to tell you. Um, so, not not that theory is always incomprehensible, but so to folk, me, a lot of the times it is. Fair folk were already a metaphor, and now the metaphor is a metaphor for understanding theory. <laughs> yeah. That's very um, fair folk. It's also uh, a little bit of a metaphor for the idea that, like, um, like people, uh, again, the idea that you're not the only whose problem this is yeah uh because you know the fae were also are also you know people and they may be different from you but uh and they may you know be difficult to understand at times but like they still have their own hopes and dreams and you know they love and they uh they hate they die that sort of thing um and like they the reason uh they failed well failed in quotation marks is because they kind of tried to do it all themselves um big part of it a big part of another theme of the game is the idea that you have to kind of be a part of the community you're trying to save um and you can't just like try to enforce your own vision of the future on people you have to work with them and bring them around and deal with their actual material conditions and concerns, which okay. the Fae were, ha had difficulty doing. Right. So the Fae are granting structure, but they're also granting power. You mentioned that they, they're the reason that you, your players have the, the masks. Can you go into a bit more detail about what masks are, how they get them, what they do mechanically, what they do fiction wise? Are they actual physical masks, Majora mask style? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so, like, uh, there's another inspiration I took from uh, at Dovetailer on Twitter. Um, made this great game 
whose name I can I can never pronounce correctly. Um, it's S U N D O, uh, Sundu, but that's not how you pronounce it. Um, and in that game, uh, what she did was uh, the big mysteries of the game. She presents you with a couple different options and has you choose from them, and kind of has you build your lore before the game starts, uh, which I was a big fan of. So. To answer your question, um, I'm going to answer in the like kind of the the broad way and also like a couple specifics. But keep in mind, like this is one of the possibilities of what the masks are. Sure. Um, they're physical wooden things. Um, they are weapons that the Fae made in order to try and fight the vampires um, because the vampires were growing more and more powerful, and the Fae needed a way to kind of basically concentrate their magic. Um, and they each have kind of like negative, um, appellations, uh, which kind of goes back to the idea that like of kind of blue and orange morality where like there's a mask called violence, there's a mask called terror, there's a mask called torment. And from the phase perspective, you know, all these things, uh, everything is a tool. The question is who do you use again, use it against and how do you use it? Um, but they provide special abilities, uh, things like, um, I think the mask of violence can see red, so it can see the blood in everyone. Um, or uh, the mask of terror, you know, you can look into a vampire's heart and know their deepest fear. There's also like mechanical things like plus one die when such and such happens or plus effect in certain scenarios. Um so they kind of make up this two side of things where uh, they give you like kind of magic, uh, but also uh, extra dice and extra mechanical edges. Okay. Um, I think fictionally they also provide um, this other mechanic called the mask bargain, which is a take on something that's pretty common in Blaze in the Dark called uh, the demon's bargain, where the idea is like you're, something bad will happen to your character, but you'll get an extra die. And in this, the idea is your mask wants you to do something and it might not always be to your advantage, but, you know, if you go along with what the mask wants you to do and if you're in sync with your mask uh, as a character, you'll get an extra... Extra what? You cut out just a bit there. Uh, an extra die. Um, or plus effect. Um, finally, the last thing they let you do is uh, there's this idea of bands. Uh, B-A-N-S. Uh, yeah. Uh, and th these were a big part of, like, fey fiction, and yep. I really wanted to use them. And I also came to this point of, like, needing an element of the game that wasn't just make a roll to see if you do it. Um, so how they work is, like, narratively, like, the fey don't try and trick you into things. They don't, like say, oh, you know, what's your, uh, can I have your name and then steal your name from you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's more that, like, they are bound by certain rules, their magic is bound by certain rules, and they can help you if you agree to be bound by those rules. So they're replacing kind of the injury system and default blaze in the dark, where you can take on certain bands, like, I will not touch iron, I will not take leather, I will not laugh, I will not cry, I will not scream, um, and those will let you, you know, kind of absorb more damage, uh, fictionally. Um, but they'll also let you just like win certain roles. Uh, 
like if you're in kind of a controlled position and things aren't very risky, you know, you can talk to your mask and your mask can give you a simple ban. Like, you know, I won't touch iron for the next two days and, you know, it can just let you win. Um, but it's also like an interesting situation if you're in like a desperate position. And uh, the, the, the thing that really inspired me was one of my players saying, I want to succeed at this no matter what it costs me. And I'm like, hmm, what's a good cost? Okay, you can't laugh anymore. You just can't, you know? And and you'll succeed in this particular situation. But as for as long as that ban lasts, you just aren't able to do this thing. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's a great way to kind of give escalation and give a sense of control to the player. It's something I've been mm-hmm. kind of tooling around with as an idea for games. The idea that... You don't have the referee set the difficulty. You have the players set the difficulty based on what they want. Mm-hmm. Giving yeah. the agency to the players to decide kind of how this is going to go down. Right, right, yeah. So that's good. That's, a, that's an excellent kind of twist on things. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, moving from masks then, uh, I have a note here about vampire lords, and I don't know what that is, so I'm going to ask you about that. So vampire lords. So... Um, that, that is what you said, right? You yeah. cut off a little bit. Yeah, okay. Vampire Lords. So when I, when I was, when about creating this game and creating this setting, I wanted to give people kind of, um, I, I took a lot of inspiration from another Forge in the Dark game called Band of Blades. Oh yeah. Band it, of Blades is kind of rad. It, it has a definite end. It's very XCOM. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. looking at it to, uh, see what kind of games we could play with it. I had an idea for it for Exalted, actually, for like a campaign nice. in the north. Nice. So that's a different story. Yeah. yeah. It, it's it's not a perfect game. Um, yeah, it I, is one of my favorite games, though, especially right now. And I I was heavily inspired by this. I like, mean, I think I, the, I started working on this right as it came out. It reminds... It has a lot of XCOM in it, and that's a huge win for a narrative game. And I like the idea that you control the army and you have to manage it. And it also mm-hmm. kind of reminds me of the first uh, Dragon Age game. And I yeah. can't articulate why. It just it has that well, big mood to it. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Because it's that sense of like being in a camp, you know? Yeah. And like and dealing that with, sort of um, thing. God, it's been so long since I played Dragon Age. Dealing with the, the, the infection, the, the evil, the dark spawn. Right, right. The dark spawn. As the dark spawn is like being this force. Yeah. That is creeping up the map and coming after you. Which is yeah, exactly definitely. what Band of Blades like exactly mm-hmm. goes for. Right, exactly. Um, so yeah, I took a lot of inspiration for that, and like how you manage the campaign is kind of close to how Band of Blades does it. Um, I think I put a little more work on the GM shoulders, where Band of Blades tries to like split it up among people. Um, but I also like use a lot of random tables and random generators, but. Uh, specifically the vampire lords in band of blades they give you like three or four what are they called like fallen i think yeah they're they're the big yeah they're the big bad they're the uh and they've each come with like a set of minions essentially right so it's it's very like thematic in that you know all the minions kind of kick up to one big bad and they all share kind of a thematic unity to them yeah they're the, and... they're the four fiends from final fantasy one or queen barrel's court right exactly um so in this game uh i did sort of a similar thing where i have three of them uh the duke the countess and the baron 
because uh, I wanted you to be able to play kind of three different aesthetics uh, as well as kind of I wanted to tackle three different horrible manifestations of capitalism. Um, so you have the Duke, which is very much like the straight up kind of industrial fascist manifestation of capitalism where, you know, it's 1984. It's, uh, you know, his face is on posters everywhere. It's, you know, marching through grim streets overlooked by uh, mechanical police um, and constant surveillance and living in kind of constant fear and paranoia. Um, and like, uh, I, I say he's like the most basic one or like the most instantly grokkable one. Yeah, the, the, the one um, you can kind of get your hands on right away. Yeah. Um, whereas the others are slightly more subtle. Um, but uh, I really, I won't say like him, but like, I really like what uh, Brian Richmond did with him. Uh, as well as our uh, monster designer hybridity, where uh, Brian kind of took this idea of like uh, the industrial fascist invasion of nature. Um, so like the 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 Duke will do things like he will raid uh, the Feylands, the Brinkwood, uh, for magical creatures to like twist and to use against you. So he'll kidnap dryads, or he'll take unicorns and do terrible experiments on them um he'll even take you know his own vampires and lock them in giant mechanical beasts uh in order to make war machines um so he's very much about kind of like the terror of uh a world turned against you hmm. um next up we have the countess uh and she kind of represents kind of uh neoliberalism in a way where everything is smiling and everything is good and everything is great and those people are monsters but you shouldn't have been rude right exactly uh she just she really doesn't like your tone um you know she gives so much to the artists and you know it sounds literally like am i the subreddit am i the asshole where it's like (sighs) my husband hit me and I yelled at him and threatened to leave him. Am I the asshole? And they're like, everyone's the asshole. He shouldn't have hit you, but you yelled. Right. Exactly. You know, the, the countess, sure. The countess enslaved your children and drank your blood. Uh, but did you really have to make like a big public show of it? Um, yeah, why could you have done this behind the scenes? You know, why did you have right. to uh, make a big scene? Right. So like, Everything is like opera houses and guilt and like the very show of finery and like the show of being nice and like everyone being happy, quote unquote. Um, you know, there's the idea is like in the if the countess rules over your lands, you're either starving in a gutter or, you know, you're like uh, living in the lap of luxury uh performing opera or something like that uh and like that switch can happen instantaneously you know uh where she kind of views but be civil right and she treats people as you know disposable things uh this idea that people are uh kind of just toys to her to be picked up and discarded you know when they say something wrong or they uh you know hit or hit an off note or hit an off they're key not, they're not good anymore what yeah if they're not good anymore uh quote unquote um but like it's very much this idea that like 
evil doesn't have to look like evil. Like, you know, she, she still does all the grisly stuff of like, you know, taxation and taking blood from people and extracting rent. But, you know, we just don't talk about that. We talk about all the lovely, you know, paintings. Why do you have to make everything dramatic and bring up drama? Why, why do you have to bring politics into everything? Exactly. Yeah, you know, I, I, know, I know a few communities that this would fly right over their head. They'd be like, she's actually the good guy of the setting. Right. Exactly. Yeah, she's a reformer. She's going to make things better here. Yeah, there's going to um, be more more women drone operators. <laughs> more planes. women vampires is yeah. is definitely kind of you, uh, you the cat You should get whoever did the 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 propaganda posters for I Hunt, like the advertising, and just have that in where it's like the Countess will bring more women vampires. Yeah. Equality. Yeah. Definitely. Well, hashtag I, I... boss bitch. Hashtag boss bitch. Yeah. Uh, yeah, hashtag boss lich is or definitely witch, her hashtag. Know, whatever her thing is, but like because <laughs> this this game sounds like it doesn't have to be feudal. It could be modern that has that's sliding feudal because of vampires being atrocious. So you definitely. could literally just have her being like an Instagram or like a like a Twitter, you know, uh, terrible liberal mm-hmm. crony who's all like she's gonna get more women vampires. Yeah, exactly. Uh, among the torture artists. Right, exactly. <laughs> the Scartists. Uh boy. Good times. <laughs> Good times. Uh, talking about her always depresses me. Um, it's, uh, it's fun. That's an instantly understandable character. People, people these days, I think now, like they did before, but like with the ability to bring up so many examples of exactly what the Countess is, you can instantly mm-hmm. go, "Oh yeah, that kind of evil." I get it. Yeah. She she's definitely a, a creature of our age and of our ex- explicit experience. Yeah. Uh, indifference to the Baron, who is what I like to call late capitalism. The mask is off, uh, where it is just grisly, blood-soaked, insane horror, twenty-four-seven for no reason. It's just it is the pain of capitalism that comes from like no, this doesn't make any sense. Why we're taking you and eating you? No, we don't need the blood to live. No, we don't need your flesh. We don't need to eat your flesh to live. We don't need to do literally any of this. We're just going to keep wasting and keep consuming and keep this cycle going because if we didn't, you know, then the economy would break down. So the Baron is basically the reason why Walmart destroys perfectly good cribs and trashes baby formula when new formula comes in, even if it's not past the due date. Right, exactly. The Baron uh, will, you know, uh, there's too many pigs, uh, kill all the pigs in this village, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, there's there's people... too many houses, burn, burn half this city down. Yeah, we have to keep, we have to stimulate the economy by breaking a few windows. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, do people complacently just not care or say it has to be that way and that's why the kids have to be in cages when they're carted off to the vampire? <laughs> Because that's very um, modern. Yeah, a little bit. I think like I think the the arc of the Baron is that it was a slow process of like here we are. Yeah, and it's he also window. that's the Overton window. You know, every month you add another atrocity to the pile, and if you add enough atrocities to the pile, they become invisible. Right. Exactly. And I think like the uh, Brian, Brian's. Yeah. 
Brian's also mixed in a lot of like kind of like religious symbology in it too. Ah, shit. Yeah, I love it when they do that. Because uh, you know, so there's you don't have to make religious like an evil element in a game or do anything like that, but it's mm-hmm. always interesting to take something that's very much a real life now problem and then fold it into like, hey, and how this look like if it was religionized. Yeah, I, I I think the the main thing I really like with Brian, what Brian does is like, how how do I justify this insanity even at like the most basic level? Like, why don't people rise up revolt? And then he was like. Well, because the religion tells them they can't, or it tells them like insane things like you can only eat meat. If you only <laughs> eat meat, uh, you are a predator. If you eat any sort of vegetable, any sort of grain, you are chattel, you are livestock, and Again, you will be drained as such. It sounds like you mind the Reddit uh, subreddit, am I the asshole for this? There's like 50 billion stories about people being all like, I went to a vegetarian's house and they served me macaroni and I have to have meat with every meal. Am I the asshole? And someone's like, what? You've never had an apple? (laughs) Yeah, like what the fuck are you doing? You've never had toast? Right, yeah. They're like, no, they shouldn't put their lifestyle choice in me. It's like, you eat vegetarian meals all the time, dickhead. Yeah, it's... You don't have spaghetti? You don't have... (laughs) You've never had, like, pickles? (laughs) It, it is waste and consumption for the take taken to being like an identity. It sounds like the barons a religion won't be that hard to deal with because they'll constantly be dehydrated by constantly having meat diarrhea. <laughs> exactly. Well, like oh wait wait wait, the, wait 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 I'm gonna throw a suggestion at you. Remember uh-huh. when Silicon Valley tech bros were getting raw untreated water and drinking? Oh to make god, super powerful and saying. <laughs> I remember that one alt-right guy who, like, uh, he did a bunch of stuff on stage. I think he crapped into a diaper or something to show that he wasn't gay. Like, it was it was ludicrous because the alt-right is ludicrous, <laughs> and I'm not making this up. This is something that happened, like, Drink on... Drink unpasteurized milk. <laughs> it was insane, right? But you could actually have, like, the people who are part of the Baron's religion or whatever who had the higher tier, like, openly wear, like, diapers or something because they're constantly eating meat, and it's really bad for your body to do that. Yeah, and like then somehow there, emperor is wearing no clothes. Make that a sign of status. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's definitely this thing where like I call the collaborators in my game wisps because they're the people who like w- really super badly want to be vampires but just don't have the money for it. Uh, you know, they're the people like if I stay on that hustle, I stay on that grind. You know, you I'm, I'm going to be there. Into the game, you have to have it be like my grind. <laughs> Yeah, dollar, dollar dupl- uh, ducats or whatever. Exactly. Uh, the uh, and like th- they kind of get the worst of it, I think, in the setting because awesome. like the vampires can live through some of the terrible things they do to themselves, but like when normal people try to like ape them or like do the same things, like just horrible shit happens to your body. That's that's absolutely perfect, and you should have a line. Where they're all like, I'm going to be a self-made vampire like the Baron. He only inherited his money from his father. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, like just... The world I mean, sucks. <laughs> uh, it's actually... The, the Baron... Uh, the Countess is the one I used for inheritance. Oh, boy. Where the idea was that... Uh, no, it, it's really terrible, you see. Like, her dad was really bad. And he was super mean to people. Uh, so she had to murder him and take his lands and, and isn't thing and aren't things and his power like and aren't who glad she did like 
everyone tried to betray her and like say she was evil and maniacal and insane. Cancel but culture they didn't... kills, all right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's she, they tried to cancel the countess and uh but she was too much of a queen, too much of a boss bitch. Exactly. Uh boss lich, rather. Yeah, there it is. Or witch. Or witch. Uh, Cance- yeah. The cancel culture kills in relation to this is just the most amazing thing in the world. And yeah, Peter suggested just running Eye Hunt in the Brinkwood setting. And there you go. Yep. Yeah, it's done. That's mm-hmm. you can marry them together. <laughs> oh, boy. So the Vampire Lords are definitely producing a lot of the minutes of this episode. And it's amazing because uh, they're kind of the breakout topic at this point. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're definitely what makes me happiest about this game. The was sat- just coming up with them. The satire yeah. is so on the sleeve. It's it's it just it just flips all the way around. Like it goes mm-hmm. all the way from like too much to perfect. <laughs> I'm glad. The odometer. Mm-hmm. It it was funny because when I Hunt came out, I was, oh man, did I go too subtle? <laughs> right. The, the answer that we have found since, like, growing up, it's like, oh, you want subtlety in your storytelling. You want to be vague. You want to leave interpretation. And now it's like you turn directly to the camera and go, the rich are cannibals eating us. We should eat them first. And then you <laughs> wink at the audience. And then and then as the credits roll, it's not credits. It's the names and addresses of every billionaire in the world <laughs> and the, the pin codes for their gates. <laughs> Oh god, that, like, wow. that would be a good that would be a good stretch goal. <laughs> and someone's like, "Wow, that episode of the Golden Girls got a little weird." <laughs> uh, not sure what they wanted us to do with that information. Yeah. It's wacky. Where, where where did Blanche get a cattle stun gun from? <laughs> Why are there just instructions on how to build a guillotine in the back of this tabletop RPG book? It's weird that Blanche, <laughs> who I thought died 20 years ago, came on came back for this reunion episode specifically to cattle prod gun Elon Musk. <laughs> but, you know, it's what we wanted from a Netflix reunion, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the reboots are hit or miss, but that's a pretty good one. That's yeah, like Fuller House. You know, you take the good with the bad, and that's the facts of life. Exactly. Um, oh, boy. So, uh, Peter is telling me that there's a thing about drinking the rich, about drinking vampires and stuff. Is yes. that a thing? Tell me about it. Why would you want to do it? Can I have started the game already doing that? Uh, yeah, I, I would say so. Um, I kind of, like, it started as just like a tagline, kind of, where uh, I really liked the idea of like, oh, it's like eat the rich, it's drink the rich, yeah. and it's vampires, and you're drinking their blood as kind of a neat inversion. Um, and I've gone through a couple like iterations of story justification for it, uh, but like the most boiled down version I can give that because it's cool, uh, the masks can feed on the blood of vampires. So if you kill a vampire, you know, uh, tear open their neck and start letting the blood pour over your mask. Uh, your mask will gain in power and strength and uh, essence, which is kind of like the um, uh, the resource akin to stress and other uh, forged in the dark games. Um, so you can you can literally recharge yourself uh, by drinking the rich uh, in the middle of in the middle of the game in the middle foray in the middle of a score and adventure nice and um yeah again like as for why it is that way 
uh, I've got a couple ideas that I throw out in the book, but like the most honest answer is because it's cool. (laughs) And it's fey magic and I don't got to explain shit. (laughs) Are there any downsides to doing that? Like, uh, like long term for the character? I don't think so. Um, It's not a thing where like, because like I'm very explicit that like it is the mask drinking the blood, not Ah. you. Um, so the idea is like, you know, it's probably a little bit of a harrowing experience. Like every time it happened in game, like the character has been kind of shaken up by it, uh, just by like the way it's described. Um, cause you know, it's messy and brutal and, uh, bloody. Um, but it isn't the whole thing where like, oh, if you drink the vampire, you will become the vampire. It's, uh it, the way i frame it is the vampires have basically corrupted people's blood uh by mixing it up with capitalism and the masks are basically disentangling to and restoring people to uh restoring blood to a state where it isn't you know bound up in this uh bound up by silver so to speak mm. All right, separating blood from the literal blood money. Yeah, exactly. All right, that's pretty cool. That's an interesting kind of arc to put your character on. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, okay, that's a good question. What if the players want to sell out and join the vampires? Can they, or does that go entirely against the theme and thesis of the game and, you know, kind of causes that arc to catch on fire? Um, so, so, like, I think, the, I think, like, there's two sides to that. Like, the one is, like, I am going to put the Olivia game uh which is you know if you're a fascist go watch some mr rogers go fuck yourself don't play this game no yeah Um, of course i don't mean that i don't mean the sense of um not playing in the spirit of the game where the spirit is clearly or revolutionary like mm -hmm. obviously no game can stand up to people coming in acting in bad faith right right yeah in the game if if circumstances or the countess sounds pretty seductive because people are stupid and mm-hmm. will believe that shit. So if the characters buy into it, um, you know, does the game have a way to kind of handle that arc where maybe for a while they start working for the vampires before they have a realization go, oh, wait, this is the stupidest thing in the world? Uh, no, not really. Um, kind of everything is kind of geared towards the idea that you're against the vampires. Like, the, the closest you come to it is that you can kind of pit the vampires against one another. If you're playing in a campaign that has, say, the Baron and the Countess and the Duke kind of all vying for control. Um, I think the wheels do kind of come off because the thing that kind of keeps you grounded and keeps you from, like, fucking off and doing whatever you want is uh, the other factions that are part of your rebellion. So, like, if the Fletchers get wind that you've decided to just up and start working for the countess. Uh, well, they're probably going to come try and kill you. Um, if your Faye finds out, uh, or like even like the masks, like would kind of revolt at that point, I think. Um, and you would stop working towards your oath, which is your pact, which is the whole thing that kind of like powers your masks. Um, and also your reputation would probably slide into nothing. Uh, which is the thing that lets you like relieve stress and keep going. So like every mechanic in the game will basically punish you for doing that. Um, 
And I don't know if that was like a cognizant design choice, um, but it's one I'm kind of okay with. Uh, just because I don't, I'm, I'm not a big fan of stories where uh, people have to like figure out that the evil thing is evil, you know? Yeah, oh, but it does raise an interesting question that that entire scenario because you can you can push it the next step down the the question line like okay, you can't work for the vampires outright. You can't do it temporarily because again it causes everything to fold apart. But what if you have to? Uh, an example that comes to mind, and I'm sure there's a thousand other more mm-hmm. recent or relevant examples, is um, Teen Titans. The original Teen Titans, um, Slade shows up and basically gets Robin to work for him for a bit, even though Robin doesn't want to, and has Robin dress up as Slade Jr. and start <laughs> uh, ripping off Wayne Enterprise technology stuff for his plot. And Robin has to basically be his apprentice and has to do it against his friend's uh, backs um, mm-hmm. because there's something bigger at stake. I don't remember what the stakes exactly were, but that would be a compelling thing that would really mess with a player if that came up, you know? And, and like, the, the most obvious example is they have your family and know that you're a rebel. So you have to do stuff for the Countess to get them back, and she's going to betray you at the end, and it's going to fudge up your reputation and mess with mm-hmm. everything. Yeah, yeah. I think, because uh, now I'm thinking of it, and we have kind of had some campaigns that kind of play with that, where, like, the Countess will, like, exert influence over people, um... Or, like, uh, the Duke will, like, catch up to your past and that sort of thing. And, like, the way people react to that. And, like, what it's usually come down to is uh, when characters have been in that situation, um, they've basically, uh, the other characters in the game, the other brigands, have gotten together to, like, fix the problem and try to overcome whatever it is that's like forcing them to go against the group. Um, and like, I think that's going to vary with like each play group, like how comfortable you are kind of playing with that. Um, Cause uh, yeah. But um, I think, I think the answer there is that you, you essentially have two choices when someone kind of starts um, uh, working inadvertently for the count or like, being a double agent uh, or not quite a double agent, but you know, is turned or compromised in some way. Um, And that is fix the thing that's compromising them or, you know, you kind of need to stop playing that character um, because they got murdered or uh, they're just a bad guy now. Okay. Well, as long as that's an option, because those are actually pretty compelling stories in like a a rebellion against Mm -hmm. the, the evil power thing where, they kind of put the screws to you and isolate you from the rest of the group for a brief period of time. As long as the game can support that, I think that's actually a pretty compelling kind of arc. No, no, on. yeah, definitely. I think Perfect. I think the game can uh, can definitely support it. Um, there's like there's a lot of like mechanics and downtime and free play where the idea is like people kind of go off and do their own thing and like live their own lives and are doing things either for the rebellion or for their own lives in it. So I could definitely see someone like playing out scenes of that during downtime. Like I think I had one player that was like, "Okay, I've made this arrangement with this vampire where, you know, she's going to feed me information on what's going on with the countess, and I'm going to give her little bits of information for what we're doing to kind of like it's like in that game, um, uh, Lord of the Rings: Shadow of War. Do you remember that? Yeah. 
No, I, I was uh, playing the recent one. Um, I tried to. It, it, the game gives you so much to do, and like the mini map is so right. small, and like you, you gotta you gotta do all these jumps and flips. I just I got sleepy. But I like <laughs> yeah, the games. I, the games are really cool. The whole minion system, or like taking over your own army, that'd be great in like Yakuza. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Straight up, like, they just took Shadow of War because the Lord of the Rings fantasy stuff is just a lot to me. It makes me feel sick mm-hmm. to just have yeah. to absorb it all. But they like put that directly into a Yakuza game where you're Kazuma Kiryu, and it's like you just grab a guy by the face and bash him enough, and then he joins your Yakuza mob. That'd be the mm-hmm. perfect game in the world. Yeah, like we we joke in our campaign that they collect vampires because like a lot of the times what our char- what the characters will do is when they get a vampire that like they think can be like reformed or like basically not be a vampire anymore they'll basically just starve them out and be like okay you work for us now <laughs> um and it's that kind of thing in that game where like okay uh you, you have i forget what his name was you, you have like this little goblin or guy and he's kind of like a runt and the idea oh, through like the, the whole main story is like you're kind of helping him like rise up through the ranks because he's your guy but like it's kind of that relationship where like yeah you're gonna get to the top and then i'm gonna stab you (laughs) because i don't see this coming man yeah exactly it's like yeah you're the the interesting thing there is like can you put people uh who are bad at their jobs in positions of power within your enemy's organization yeah, that's uh, actually a really good idea, putting people who are totally incompetent into it. Right, right. Like, a lot of the times the vampires will just be wildly incompetent just by their very nature. Yeah. But, like, there are, like, a few, like, stone-cold, you know, evil motherfuckers that, like, if you replace them with idiot rich kid shitheads, like, maybe it'll be a lot easier to win a rebellion. Their dad owns a stable. <laughs> yeah, that's uh yeah that's a, that's actually pretty cool that's a good strat. Mm-hmm. Top ten strats in Shadow of Brinkwood. <laughs> it's just a exactly. bunch of a bunch of dudes with like platinum frosted tips and popped collars and ankle socks wearing sandals just like walking around being vampires. <laughs> it's a very specific type of person I'm slamming right now, but still good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think um, uh, Jammy um, at Temporal Hiccup, uh, they've DM'd, uh, they've GM'd quite a few games of this, and they tend to lean more into kind of that emotional side of things. Um, the whole thing of like, oh, you know, what is it? What is going on with your family? You know, what is the personal connection between you and this vampire? And uh, they run those games brilliantly, and I am I am so happy that they're able to run those games in this system. So uh, once it's out, we'll probably take a look at it and put it into our queue. We have this huge, sprawling queue, and we'll definitely try to play it. And if we play it, I'm going to preemptively apologize to you to just how bad we are at it. Not that we're <laughs> bad at playing games. We're good at playing games. It's pretend. You can't really be bad at it, but... Right, right. You can't win D&D. We, uh... We go off the rails in the in in the not being super sincere area. It, it gets bad fast. <laughs> no, I mean, as, as long <laughs> as you're not a fat, 
<laughs> as long as you're not a fascist, I I I love you for playing my game. Like, have you seen um, the good place? Yeah. So like all of us collectively most of the time play Jason from the good place. We're we're, <laughs> yeah. we're bad at it, man. We're throwing Molotovs and have a penguin who's named after Blake Bortles. I, I you know, here here's the thing is like I don't want to give the impression that the game is like some dark, moody, grim dark thing and that you're playing wrong if you have fun. Uh, because I I both firmly believe and design as if every game will eventually turn into a dark comedy, no matter what. Yeah. So that's awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's good. Like, not all games are super serious, but certain games do lend themselves to a gravity or a gravitas, I guess. And this game feels like it. Like, it feels like there's a certain amount of, like, hey, guys, this is what's kind of happening right now. We just put mm-hmm. a very, very, very thin metaphor over top of it. It's a nightmare. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. you don't really want to be being too goofy dealing with those themes. But at the same time, you know, it's okay to embrace that. Yeah. I, I think it can... Um, I think I think the tone can shift depending on where you are at just for that session, you know. Uh, I've played very gonzo sessions of this. I've played, you know, very serious, very somber ones. Um very emotionally charged ones and i've had games where you know we just go and blow up a brewery uh because the vampires don't get beer anymore yeah, you're and that's going to cause problems for them <laughs> with their workforce and etc cetera, etc cetera, you know now i'm imagining um, a recontextualization of this game where the vampires and the rebellion are roommates and it's it's passive aggressive to the gills <laughs> it's like yeah well you didn't take out the garbage so the brewery's been destroyed <laughs> Oh wow! You didn't do the dishes, so I let all your milks, let all your blood milk spoil. Sorry about that. I'd say I'm sorry, <laughs> but that would make both of us liars because you promised you know, to do the dishes. It's funny that you say that because, like, I'm thinking of it now, and I have these mechanics for what I call the campaign turn, where like the vampire lords actually like do things against the players and like fuck with their shit and fuck with their. Uh, the map of the of the game and like i'm thinking about how it's expressed and it is almost kind of passive aggressive where like sometimes they'll throw feast and other times you know they'll order like random executions uh but other times they'll just like be plotting against each other too bit too much to like really interfere with what's going on so something we like to do a lot is we'll take a game that was clearly meant for one thing and we'll use it for another thing and to awesome. give you some context, one of the examples is Fellowship. You know about Fellowship, right? Uh, v- vaguely. Powered by the Apocalypse um, game that emulates to the gills, uh, running adventure YA stories like The Last Airbender, Legend of Korra, Shira and the Princess of Power, Steven Universe, um, Lord of the Rings would be an example, but more YA adventure, mm-hmm. right? It, it's not the game with like tokens where like you have the black and white tokens and you flip them. No. Uh, okay, the, I'm the thinking of something else. all represent you being the champion of a culture or a society or an organization. So, but it's all oh, abstracted. Okay. So, if you're playing the elf playbook, and the game took place in like a sci-fi setting, elves would represent like the Asari from Mass Effect. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you said that, I thought the Asari. Exactly. Well, that's oh, the trope, boy. though, right? The Asari are basically yeah, yeah. space elves, which are basically Vulcans, which are basically yeah, actual yeah. elves from Token. Like, 
yeah. you don't have to make it a race thing. The, the game's very explicit about that. Even, But that's just the default they give you because most players are coming from D&D and they'll just kind of catch on quicker that they can kind of do Yeah, there, there's three types of people. There's there's orc, elf, uh, dwarf, uh, human, which is boring person, mm-hmm. and I don't know, I guess tiefling now. So to, uh, so to wrap that to our <laughs> example, we took Fellowship and we used it to run Transformers as like a World oh, cool. War One band of brothers gritty PTSD story. <laughs> um, like on Cybertron? <laughs> yeah, like on Cybertron oh, after man. the Ark and the Nemesis have left. So the people you're playing oh, are the, the ones that are left behind on a dead world. And the war oh, is still shit. technically going, but you know... <laughs> Everyone has has no reason to fight anymore because the two commanders of the war are not around right now. So it's basically oh, that's so bleak. <laughs> it was real bleak. Uh, it was the first time in like five years we killed a PC. Oh boy! Yeah, that's uh... <laughs> tune that sounds... in on sponsored by nobody to fellowship a Cybertron. But well, that like... example. And the other example is I Hunt. Uh-huh. The entire game loop for I Hunt being, you know, someone who does jobs for very little wage and is underappreciated and is destroying their personal life. We mm-hmm. have a game pitch for that where it's playing Sidereals and Exalted. Like, mm. stock Sidereals doing their day job. And their day job is doing this. Like, like you, you get things you have to do. And the I Hunts are basically doing extra stuff to kind of support yourself beyond that because you don't have mm. a lot of free time or free agency. So mm-hmm. we do that to games a lot. We'll find one thing and do it with another thing that still fits all the narrative beats and themes. Right. The reason I give you these anecdotes is the follow-up question is, what way could I take Brinkwood and put it in a way you hadn't quite considered off the bat? What's essential to Brinkwood for a story to be intact but can otherwise be changed? Like, for instance, just off the top of my head, could I change Brinkwood so that instead of it's a rebellion against vampires and people who are complacent with vampires to make it like Batman Arkham City where your, your Gotham PD or your like street level crime fighters who have found <laughs> like the remnants of other superhero tech in the city, that would be the face stand in and like the barons and the countesses are Batman supervillains and their crews that you're pushing against. Um, I, I would say yes, that sounds amazing, except no cops. You can't play a cop in well, my game. I'm yeah, sorry. A cab, a cab. We all know. <laughs> but, but no, I think like if you were like street level like vigilantes or like a I, I would like the idea of like a Gotham like community defense league or something exactly. like that. Where like you like did, you stole a bunch of Wayne tech and you're you know getting it together uh to um you know basically fight off you know the riddler's gang or the joker's game who want to like blow up your community center or like uh more likely uh black mask gentrify your neighborhood um and like maybe the fae would be you know uh, a not very shitty superhero the fae would probably (laughs) be a good stand-in for um the really well-written anti-heroes or anti-villains the yeah. ones who are like, because mm-hmm. most writers and I think fans don't quite understand them because of how they're usually written. So if you write them the correct way, they're still recognizable characters, but they're still very alien to how a normal hero or a normal person would think, right? Right, like, right. Poison Ivy, I think, is the the best example in recent. Oh, history. definitely. Poison Ivy. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna do another segue in the middle of your Kickstarter podcast interview, but I'll I'll come back. But Poison uh-huh. Ivy is a perfect modern example of someone who's 
shifted to the point where she's no longer considered a villain. <laughs> like, have, have you watched the new Harley Quinn I, animated that, that thing? Is, that is on the back of my mind right now because it, that's exactly it, right? Where it's like Harley yeah, Quinn is someone. I'm, I'm not who, really a villain. I, I prefer the, the environment is villainous. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, like like uh, that I Harley so Quinn much. when we were growing up and watching Batman the Animated Series. It's like, oh, she's a murder lady who uses plants to kill people and doesn't like people. All right, well, she's clearly a bad guy. Batman has to put her in Arkham. But, like, now it's like, Harley Quinn has problems socializing with people because people are awful. Also, she's a woman, so, you know, <laughs> odds are she has a fair good reason to not want to socialize with people. People are awful. Mm -hmm. um, and she wants to save the environment and emphasizes with plants where no one emphasizes with plants. Where, like, plants don't feel pain, throw it in the plant grinder. The juicer, right, right. you know, to make plant drinks. And it's like, mm -hmm. oh, and what does she want to do? The Juicero. Yeah. She, what does she want to do? She wants to blow up uh, a Wayne Tech oil refinery uh, that's mining, that's that... fracking under Gotham because it's killing the um, wildlife. And Batman's hmm. like, mm, Jim, hmm. I don't think we should arrest her. <laughs> I think she's a good Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, boy. Like, like, that would be a good example of the fair folk in that example because you mm -hmm. get her, but she's not quite right. Yeah. Um... And, uh, my anecdote is X-Files. There's an episode in the early seasons of X-Files where aliens are abducting animals from a zoo and stealing their babies from the womb because the X-Files is fucking wild, man. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, and and the, the X-Files basically has three beats to it, like any procedural show where there's the introduction and the first red herring, the second red herring, and then the reveal of what who was obvious the whole time, who's the real bad guy. So mm -hmm. one of the first red herrings are they're environmentalists trying to get the zoo shut down and they're doing controversial anarchistic things like videotaping the conditions uh, that the zoo animals live in and the zoo animals live in <laughs> awful conditions. Their cages are way too small. The elephant what has, monsters? The elephant has like a cell it lives in. So does the gorilla and the orangutan. The tiger is like sleeping in a cage. It can't really patrol very often. Um, they're also doing evil things like putting posters up and like going on TV and organizing protests. And like they're even yeah. escalating to the point where they're going to kidnap some of the animals and get them shipped back to the wild to be rehabilitated on a like like in Africa and in like a, a reserve until they can be put back into the gen pop. And and Mulder and Scully are like, if they were up to, I think Mulder or Scully, I think it's Scully because she's a real hard ass in that episode. She says to him with so much condescending venom, if it was up to you, there wouldn't be any zoos in America, would there? And he's like, no, there wouldn't. And Nicole and I are watching and we're like, yeah, fuck zoos. They're awful. I Fuck mean, up. it's it's a wild thing because like that was the '90s, and it's like 20 years later, 30 years later at this point, and we're like, yeah, fuck Zeus, Scully, what's your damage? It's it's funny how much over time, like, because uh, Mulder kind of always had the attitude, fuck the FBI a little bit, he, he and how much, much he's been history history has vindicated him. <laughs> Right. The, the, it's kind of weird that Mulder turned out to be more vindicated than Dale Cooper. Yeah. But in Dale Cooper's defense, the FBI was a bunch of clowns in FBI costumes. <laughs> like, the FBI and Twin Peaks are weirdos. Yeah. Especially yeah. because David Lynch is the yelly head of the FBI. Yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, they're all, you know, they're all... Uh... I, I what, what what's the joke about the FBI? 
I forget. Anyway, uh, but yeah, I get what you mean. They, the, another fun side thing about the FBI and Twin Peaks is that they acknowledge how weird they are. Uh, uh, the, the, the head of the FBI, right? Like the character played by the creator of Twin Peaks, uh, David Fincher? No, that can't be his name. I just said his name. doesn't matter. David Lynch. David Lynch. There it is. Different David. David Lynch is a dude with earphones who shouts all the time. And in the Twin Peaks first seasons, he's hitting on women at least 10 years younger than him who are in their like early 30s, maybe mid 20s. And it's pretty gross. But now that mm-hmm. 30 years have gone by and the new Twin Peaks is out, he's older. And the women he's hitting on are still 10 years younger than he is now. Like, he's hitting on older women, but they're still too young for him. But he's he, the, the window has shifted with the character. Right. He's not just hitting on young girls and teens. He's consistently hitting on women who are 10 years younger than him. It's just right. weird. All right? He's just a weird guy. <laughs> it's weirdly consistent. <laughs> uh, yeah i love twin peaks it's a it's, great show uh, it's great even even though even the, the plot points about the guy on the motorcycle and the wife who like pins the murder on him it, 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 it's dull mm. but it's fine whatever. whatever anyway that's a great way to come back <laughs> to say what are the different ways you could do brinkwood that aren't brinkwood um if you can think of anything off the top of your head go for it if not just tell us what are the core aspects someone looking to turn brinkwood into another game would want to keep thematically and narratively and structurally i think um i think you kind of hit the head on hit the nail on your head with your example where like i think uh the core elements are that you're a group of normal ish people who have found something extraordinary or gotten something extraordinary um, and that their willingness to use the extraordinary thing is kind of what makes them powerful Um, and that it's a group of people that kind of relies on other groups uh, because it's a game about community. It's a game about, you know, building alliances and that sort of thing. Um, I think, yeah, definitely. Well, that's a given. So how Star Wars should have been after uh, Ryan Johnson's uh, one where like they hinted at this idea of like, yeah, you know, the uh, the two sides of the war both buy their weapons from the same guys. Right? Maybe oh, that's a God. problem. That, that, Maybe we should deal with that. <laughs> remember how Poe or Finn, FN21, his name's Finn. Remember how Finn's entire arc in that movie was hey maybe choosing to be a coward and not take a side in the war between people and the nazis makes you a nazi collaborator was totally dropped in the third movie yeah uh so yeah you could definitely use this game to play the correct third movie of star wars um where you know you're going to different planets and uh unionizing them building uh community defense initiatives the best uh, thing about the third Star Wars movie is the best thing that's about every third Star Wars movie. Emperor Palpatine cackling like a goofball because he's <laughs> he's the only person taking Star Wars the correct amount of serious. <laughs> he, that actor has so much fun. I mean, he, the character he, of Palpatine, because he's not the same actor who played the original one, right? But like... Oh, is he not? No, I don't think so, is he? I thought that guy died. Oh, he's man. Old. I don't know. Maybe he was. Maybe I'm just wrong. Either way, I, yes. you must you must be right because I'm thinking now. I'm like he would have to be so fucking old, right? By now. And that guy doesn't look that old. Like hell, yeah, the voice yeah. actor for the Clone Wars Palpatine died before this guy did. Then that can't be right. Yeah, yeah. But 
but well, the character, someone's having a good time with someone, the character. The character is structured well enough that even multiple actors can do him right. He takes Star Wars as serious as the as it should be taken. And he's still mm-hmm. laughing, going ass over head over a chair when Yoda's force pushing him, talking about little green friends like Kermit the Frog, throwing lightning mm-hmm. to space to blow up ships that he could have done the whole time. The correct amount of series. And he's the best part of every third Star Wars movie, because every third Star Wars movie is real mediocre. Even Return yeah. of the Jedi. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely. We you just can, lost half you can... our uh, listeners at that point. <laughs> it's fine um so you, could, you could definitely do star wars with it uh to get the other half of the listeners you could do star trek be the mati uh or the rebels on bajor um you could uh, uh to throw like, another controversial opinion out uh ds9 in the first two seasons does it's the best job possible of making the ba- the bajorans who were the best people in the world in tng and you felt for them be totally unlikable yeah, they it's really a problem. made the Cardis Cardassians seem like the 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 more reasonable, neutral, centrist people. Right. There's an episode well, in season one where the Bajorans shoot an old man who's a war uh, hero in the chest, so he'll get off his land, so they can take his land from him and blow up the moon and make it uninhabitable for mining. Well, like that's the whole thing is like if you have a population that's been like traumatized yeah. by atrocities and war, and like the people that come in afterwards are going to look at that and they're going to be like, Oh, well, are you sure we can't work something out here? Yeah. You know, don't you think you're being a little unreasonable? Yeah. You? Uh, it um, makes sense. Cause the, the Bajoran people in this example were thoroughly fucked up by the occupation. So them being running hot. Cause that was Kira's whole arc is that she ran hot because she's still in rebellion mode, not in peacetime mode. Right. It makes sense. But Holy God, I rewatched DSI's, early seasons and it's it's rough man they bomb yeah. school yeah <laughs> for yeah. political it, it, reasons it, it's tough to get behind certain things the, the, um, the season one end is the Bajorans because their religion doesn't want to teach evolution bombs a preschool so a political monster Christ. can become Pope president but at least oh, she'll boy. put more female drone pilots in god uh 90s era politics storytelling is like it 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 seems almost trite like the problems of like do we teach people evolution in schools like i know there's a lot of like serious stuff like you know people were still being repressed in the 90s and like there was all this horrible shit going down but like the things we thought were problems were stuff like i don't know do kids get to pray in this school and it's like, meanwhile, to... today, today the question is, I don't know, should we put these children in cages? The, the question yeah. today to keep it school-themed is, should the disabled kids be allowed to go inside the school shooter shelter that only fits half the classroom? Because they can't <laughs> fit in their wheelchair. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's a real article. Is, Look it up. Is that a real thing? Yeah. Oh, God. Schools now have school shooter closets in classrooms, and they don't quite fit everyone. And if you're disabled or you know, slow and can't get to it in time. The The way teachers do the, the organization or the way the school board's forcing is that someone's being left behind. Christ. That's, that's such like, it is a dark, it, it is a dark problem on top of a darker problem. There's a lot like, to unpack If you there. fix that problem, you still haven't fixed the problem. 
right? Yeah, like, there's a lot to unpack there, is what we'll say. It's such a slap in the face because if you fix the kids being able to get into the school shooter shelter, you still have the school shooter shelter and the school shooter drills, which are causing PTSD in that generation. By the way, they've they've started yeah. to track that, and then you still have the school shootings. It's like yeah, there's a it's a Jenga tower. Yeah, it's um, God. So. It's... Star oh, Trek, well. Star Wars, superhero. What else do we got? Um, let me think. Um, there, you could do uh, stuff like I don't know. I'm trying to think of other genres. My my head's in space mode right now. Right. Um, you could probably do something uh, westerns. Like keep popping into my mind, oh, but yeah, like yeah, yeah, western yeah, yeah. is like kind of a fraught genre. Um, so I think, I think with that caveat there, yeah, that's another good example. Yeah. It's the other thing where like you could be, cause so many like spaghetti Westerns revolve around, there is a rich man coming to your town to kill you all, <laughs> uh, figure out a way to deal with that. You or know? like a rich man bought all the cattle and now he's going to wipe out the town. Right. Um, you could do uh, just off of that, you know, seven samurai style stuff, uh, you know, with my, like uh, and... my escalation question then is could mm -hmm. you expand the scope of the game through abstraction? Whereas instead of your character representing a single character, he represents maybe a coalition that acts as a unit and the rebellion itself is a much larger rebellion that's scaled up equally. So for example, maybe mm. instead of playing one character, you're playing a small squad of ships. And mm -hmm. like, every character is a small squad of ships, and they're like going to do stuff against the big bad. Yeah, yeah. I've I've actually like thought about this sometimes of like wouldn't it be cool if like you were playing like an entire faction mm -hmm. within the world of Brinkwood or whatever it is. A little where, bit like, like legacy, but uh, more focused yeah. on having the, the, the crew playbook being a bigger thing and you being itself a crew. Right, exactly. Um, I I I am always down for those games that are stitched out of other games, you know, yeah. like that are that just go bigger and bigger. Um, like the BattleTech role playing game that has like BattleTech battles inside of it and a BattleTech campaign on top of it, you know, that sort of thing. Um, Don't talk so... about mech games. I've been trying. We're we're starting to get ready to play Lancer, and it's so slick looking. Yeah definitely um so uh i think i'll wrap up that section there just you know the, the the idea behind that is just to give people an idea of what they can do with this game kind of where they can go off the beaten path because that's a lot of mm -hmm. value right there being able to there are stories people want to play that they don't want to use like D, D or fate for where mm -hmm. they just haven't found the system for it so i find that doing these kinds of stress tests you know fellowship for transformers uh i hunt for an actual sidereal game that's pretty compelling Exalted mm -hmm. doesn't quite do that really well. Or this game for if you want to do Arkham City. Mm -hmm. I like kind of exploring that potential and find out what is essential and what can be tweaked and changed without actually changing the rules or having to do any homebrew. Because the suggestions we all made yeah. today, you wouldn't have to change any of the mechanics, I think. It would all be the same. You just have to reflavor what they represent. Exactly. Um, I would even go in so far as to say, like, you don't necessarily be have to be a rebellion, you know, like we were talking about with the I Arkham mean, City thing. 
I mean, if with the Fae representing people you don't quite understand, and the Masks representing a power where you made a pact or a promise of virtue to, and the Generals representing different weird creatures that have mooks that are stylized to them, you've essentially described Power Rangers. Yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, you could definitely have Fae Zordon. Yeah. <laughs> Take a note of that. We'll, uh, we'll circle back to that later. I've had a Power Rangers game on the shelf for like four years now because I haven't found anything for it and I was going to look at masks, but... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, because like I'm thinking to it now and like kind of the the Ranger archetypes like map really neatly onto the mask. So yeah, Yeah. that would definitely work. Yeah, and plus packs like never escalate, don't initiate violence, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like it's all there. The code of the superhero wrapped up in Sentai. Yeah, exactly. So that is the last thing I'll leave people on. (laughs) And we'll move Uh on to the next part. Uh, Let's talk about the Kickstarter itself. You know, kind of nuts and bolts overview. What can people expect? What can people be excited for? So, of Um, course, we started with uh, April 15 is the start date. Um, mm -hmm. First question, how much are you looking to raise? um, We're still nailing down our finance a little bit. Um, It's going to come down to somewhere in the neighborhood of 8K to 10K. Uh, just depending on whether USD? or not we USD, yeah, uh, hardcover or not, um, whether or not hardcover is first stretch goal or built in, and we just go for it right away. Personally, um, I like the soft cover Reader Digest style books. Like they just—they're—they're mm. they're just nice to be able to kind of pick them up, fold them. You know, if you're if you're looking to read them or put them in a bag, they have a bit of give. Whereas hardcovers, mm-hmm. you know, they they get dented, they get warped, they'll pull themselves away from the binding. Yeah, yeah. But people like hardcovers. They like their premier kind of shelf book, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a big part of it. Um, Because, yeah, just because the way of, like, structuring it. You want to give something that people can actually use, but at the same time, you also want to give something that, like, looks pretty and people want to have on the shelf, you know? So Um, you've mentioned a bunch of playtests and campaigns ongoing. It sounds like the game is mostly complete at this stage, right? I would say so. Um, I would say that, like, uh, the only caveat being there that, like, changes are still ongoing. Of course. uh, As we playtest, you know, we find edge cases, we find things you want to change. And I'd still, and I'd say to people, like, who want to get involved, like, don't feel like you've missed the boat on this at all. Like, if you have an idea about Brinkwood or, you know, you catch something we missed, like, please reach out and let and let me know. This is nowhere near final. It, it will not be final until, you know, probably a couple months after we close the Kickstarter. And right. even then, you know, I can always do Arata. Uh, games are always living things in, in my perspective. Yeah. So when Brinkwood goes live, uh, will there be like a, like a preview um, supplement to be released? Will you be, people be able to engage with it as soon as the Kickstarter goes up? Will it be behind a goal? Will it be free for everyone? How are you going to run that? What's the, what's the plan for that? Uh, well, you can actually engage with it right now. Oh, really? Whenever it comes out. Uh, yeah, it's available at .io. Uh, if you go to just brinkwood.net, uh, you can get a copy of the game um in its most current iteration um i think i've chopped a few things out um that we're still working on uh that are more um thematic and more having to do with like the world building um that we're still kind of playing with but the game as it exists right now is 100 playable uh 100 up to date on all the rules changes 
Um, it's 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 probably not perfect. Uh, I haven't hired an editor yet. That's what the Kickstarter's for. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 keep that in mind. If you download it and play it and you catch my mistakes, please let me know, but don't think less of me for it. Um, or don't think less of my team, rather. Um, so people can kind of take the game and run with it now to get a taste of what's coming. The Kickstarter is kind of to complete it, give it polish, mm -hmm. you know, tip that lantern. Yeah, yeah, it's it's best. It's definitely about like kind of taking it to the next level because yeah, making it a, f uh, a feature kind of product. Yeah, so something that people, you know, don't have to struggle through and has pretty layout and has pretty art and has good editing and all those sorts of nice tabs. Not just a G doc that people are sharing. Right, right. I, we're not quite that bad, uh, though. I think there was there's definitely an iteration of it like that. Yeah, I've been I backed uh, Hearts of Wulin a little while ago, and it looks pretty cool. But I don't remember. I think it was like a year ago I backed it, and I'm waiting for the next revision to come out. I'm not really complaining. I'm just anticipating. But like the version mm -hmm. I have is a G doc. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, this is great, but like I I, I want to see what it's going to look like being done. With that in mind, mm -hmm. how long do you think after the end of the Kickstarter it's going to take for the final PDF of the game to be finished? Not like an exact date range, but like a ballpark. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be safe and say, uh, that October is what we're shooting for. Uh, that being said, all the usual caveats about production and that sort of thing. Um, so like a the six team month I'm, turnaround. Yeah. Yeah. Th that's that being said, the team I'm working with, uh, Francida, uh, who's doing layout for us. Like she amazes me with how quick she turns stuff around. Like I asked her to do like two, like two pages to, just to give people a sample uh for the kickstarter and she like turned around an entire chapter in like two days so awesome. i i am not worried at all about the people i'm working with all the artists i've used um i've already used them before and you know they turn around work quickly uh you know with detail and revisions and all that um i think a big strength and we'll talk about this when we talk about co-op stuff but a big strength of the co-op model is that we're all kind of in this together pulling together so mm -hmm. uh if, if one thing breaks down you have a like pool of professionals to draw on exactly like if if i if i slack on the job if i you know run into trouble someone else can pick up the slack and keep running with it so you're not you're not just putting your faith into me you're putting your faith into the san Gennaro co-op mm-hmm so with a Kickstarter, we're assuming that all the standard kind of stretch goals and backer two rewards are in play, right? You know, mm -hmm. more polish on the book, pay bumps for creatives, you know, maybe extra widgets here and there. Are there any rewards that are really cool or stand out that you'd want to pitch to people uh, who are listening? Yeah, to I think like, so there's two that I really want to. Um, the first one is just the map of Cardenfell, um, which was put together by Brian Richmond. And it's just so beautiful and I love it so much. And like, I want this thing on my wall. I want this thing spread out on tables with, you know, post-its on it. I, I, I love it so much. And I think it brings such a cool element to the game to have this, uh, this, this physical map of the world you're kind of creating and manipulating and fighting for. Uh, as a tangible object in front of you. So that's what I'm really excited about. Um, the other one is uh, 
there's a game um, called In the Face of Our Despair, uh, which you can go and buy uh, on itch.io right now, um, made by uh, Jammy uh, at Temporal Hiccup. And as part of it, as part of our Kickstarter, we are kind of doing a side Kickstarter as a stretch goal uh, for that game, where we will be, um, no matter what, uh, Jammy's getting paid uh, for making this game um all profits are going to them um but as a stretch goal we will be making physical copies of that game we will be giving it some more polish we will be doing you know more art i'm gonna, probably going to do some writing for it but basically whatever jammy need uh we're going to give to them because awesome. uh, uh the the way kickstarter is structured for certain people internationally it makes it very difficult for them to use um, yeah. And that's a resource we want to make available. Um, even, even just shipping's a killer, right? And like I'm, that game, I'm so excited about it's um, it's trophy uh, or rooted in trophy, which is still has its Kickstarter going on right now. Um, and it's kind, of, it, it in itself is a derivation of Forged in the Dark. So yeah, it's I, like I've seen ad copy for trophy, but I I've, I haven't engaged in it at all because I don't know anything about what's going on on that side yeah yeah it's it's um it, it it's an interesting thing where it's you know you got powered by the apocalypse and then forged in the dark is derived from that and then trophy is derived from the dark um but it's a game about playing the fey before brinkwood mm-hmm. um so it's almost like a setup game for brinkwood nice. where like you kind of create the circumstance that led to the present once Brinkwood exists. And it's a much kind of like darker game in its tone. It's a, it's a very tragic game. It's a very emotional game. Um, it's a very uh, bloody and beautiful game. Uh, in my opinion, um, Jamie has a real talent uh, for kind of putting together these games that really kind of tug at the heartstrings in a way that um, I, as, I as a designer am continuously amazed by um so we're, we're still working on all the details and how that's going to be kind of leveled um and brought out but uh you know no matter what um i'm just so grateful that that game got made and uh that hopefully we're going to be able to do something for it awesome so my uh follow-up here on the kickstarter side of things is um who's working on it uh who's all kind of involved are there any kind of spotlights you want to throw um, you know, it's it's funny because I don't want to leave anyone. Out. I know it's so many the people worst working part on it. this question is you don't want to you don't want to snub anyone or just forget while you're kind of scrambling. So it's a bit unfair, but yeah, I, know. I, I would say uh, definitely k- check our Kickstarter page when it goes live to see everyone. Um, I I love a, I love our promotion team to death, uh, Basilisk and Francida and Forest. Uh, they've done so many wonderful things um you know just getting promotion and getting interviews like this going um our uh uh our consultants um i've already shouted out brian richmond a lot but also oh hybridity zwater all the great work they've done on the setting on the monsters on the factions um our artists um stephanie steph mhc uh, Muhammad Saad, uh, Olivia Rea, and hopefully Micah Tay. Um, their art is really what's going to bring Brinkwood to life, I think, for a lot of people. 
mm-hmm. especially with when it comes to the monsters, because th- we're we're doing a lot of. I, I am continuously amazed by just like how horrifyingly beautiful some of the the, the illustrations they're doing are. Um, also, uh, we have someone doing our Kickstarter video, uh, Dewada, um, uh, or Sin S I N. Uh, I think her at is uh, at Dewada Manila, um, and they do just such great video editing work. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, we have a we have a Discord uh, that you can also access, Brinkwood.net, um, and all our playtesters, uh, everyone in the community there. It's been such a joy and such a privilege to run games for them, uh, solicit feedback, and also like it, it, it's really kind of been a, a, almost even more than a team effort. It's been a community effort bringing this game into what it is. To- awesome. Well, we'll definitely uh, refer to the Kickstarter to kind of get a list of everyone involved. I'm sure it's going to be kind of a knockout cast. So mm-hmm. I think we'll transition then to the San Gennaro co-op. So tell us a bit about the San Gennaro co-op, you know, from your perspective, uh, you know, what it's mm-hmm. like, kind of what it's doing, what it's kind of mission statements like. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I came to the co-op uh, a couple months in um, to after its creation, I think. I think I came in around the time we were working on the first digest. Um, and basically our mission statement is to make games uh, in a way that's democratic uh, and equitable and financed in a way that is uh, not exploitative. Um, and so w- what we mean by that is, you know, we decide upfront how things are going to get paid for, um, how profits are going to be broken down. You know, everyone gets royalties for the stuff they work on. Everyone uh, gets paid fairly and equitably. Um, We uh, also do a lot of uh, democratic organizing where this game, you know, I I designed a lot of it. Uh, I did not design all of it. I'm not the final word on Brinkwood or what it is. Um, All of the decisions relating to the business um, some of the decisions relating to the design, um, we you know we put to a vote and we talk about and we discuss and we disagree and you know we try to come to uh, the best decisions we can. Um, but we are all very committed to this idea of uh, that it's possible to make things uh, in a fashion that is democratic rather than autocratic. Mm. Um, so yeah, that that that's kind of like my main focus with the. Is there any way to go into more detail on how the co-op works for people who aren't familiar with it? Sure, sure. Um, so how it works is, uh, it's run out of a Discord, and essentially anyone can join that signs an agreement, um, that all the co-op members uh, sign. Uh, it basically says you agree to, um, uh, not. Um, like, uh, I I want to say be a shithead, but like it's right. it's very specific politically where it's like, you know, don't uh be Nazi, a racist, don't be a sexist, don't Nazi be a Nazi. Punks, fuck off. 
Nazi punks fuck off is like a big part of which, our agreement. Which is something that a lot of TTRGB RPG companies just don't have as a policy. <laughs> it's it seems like Most they struggle with it. I don't know. I mean, uh, if, if I were them, the top... I would simply not have Nazis. I mean, if you could name the top three, they all hire them. Yeah. Mm. But uh, yeah. So and um, so once you sign the agreement, that means you're eligible to vote and work in the co-op. Um, we've got a number of different projects, which is nice running at once. So the idea is that, you know, as you want to work, there is work available for you. Uh, most of the work I think people do is based on royalty. Uh, meaning that, you know, um, once a game uh, is um, once a game is made and produced out in the wild, you know, that's when you get paid um, rather than kind of just being paid like a lump sum up front. And then, you know, if the game's wildly successful, you never see any of that cash again. Up front, um, you mean six to seven, you mean two to three years after it's been published. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry. Not up front. Um, <laughs> <laughs> whatever the, uh, whatever the industry strand industry, terrible standard is for freelancer these days. Oh yeah. Um, and when we do pay freelancers, you know, we pay rates that are equitable. Um, I think it's like, 20 cents or 40 cents a word somewhere in there um i think for like all of our stretch goals for brinkwood at least it's all going to be 40 cents a word um plus shares um so stuff like that and then the main thing is uh you get to vote on everything um if anyone wants to do anything in the co-op if they want to make a game they want to change how things are run um if we want to do things like um you know, create a website, uh, create a Twitch stream, um, which we're fairly active on on Brinkwood. Uh, check out our Twitch stream. Uh, you know, people have to, we have to draft it up. We have to talk about it. Um, and uh, then we get to have a vote on it. Um, and it's such a, it's such an interesting experience to be working in like kind of this professional setting and get to have a vote on like this big part of your life you know how how the actual business is run because i think a lot of the times especially where i'm from uh, in america we're so used to like you know you get told what to do by the boss and even if you think it's a dumb idea or you know that it's an insane idea you kind of just have to shrug your shoulders and be like well they're the ones paying me so i guess right. i'll go along with it yeah um, best way to do creative works yeah exactly um just do what the rich man tells you it'll be fine don't um whereas in this game in this style you actually have to advocate for what you are what you're doing like i think brinkwood got so much better uh and crystallized so much as a concept when i had to bring it to the co-op and draft it up and be like no this is how it what it actually is you know and actually justify the decisions in yeah the gameplay loop yeah, exactly. I had to I had to justify what it was and what it was going to be and like, you know, kind of convince other people. And like that was a very valuable experience just cuz like if I can't convince, you know, 10 people in a co-op that this game's a good idea, how am I going to convince 100, 200, 300 people on Kickstarter? So, uh, yeah, I was I I was both um a little unprepared for that at first, but ultimately very grateful. For that experience that back and forth and that discussion yeah that sounds like that's an actually a really healthy environment to do game design in and do project design mm -hmm. in. 
Well, yeah, because the, the the healthy thing about it is that it's not conflict driven. You know, it's not egos. There's not it's a not, deadline. There's not someone who's yeah. like, it has to look good for my brand. Right, right. I don't have to. I don't have to put my two cents in so that everyone here knows that I'm, that I'm the one who has the final say. And it's just how can we all make this thing better and make this thing something that we can all be proud of? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think then we've come to kind of uh, the natural conclusion of this little interview. We've covered a lot of ground today, gotten a lot of insight, seen a lot of ways that uh, Brankwood can go and gotten some great kind of foundational knowledge. So, I think at this point, it might be a good time to kind of wrap it up. Unless you got anything else you want to add to the listeners, anything else to kind of pitch to them for the Kickstarter? Um, I would just say, uh, please check out Brinkwood.net. Um, you know, you can get a link to uh, a free copy of the game you can pick up, check out, see what you think. And if you do end up liking it, um, I would just say, uh, especially if you're listening to this, uh, this interview, you are the people I want to reach. You are the people I want to enjoy this game and talk about this game. Um, these sorts of things don't get done unless people talk about and share the things they love with other people. Uh, and you are the TTRPG community. So yeah, if you, if you, do, I, I always say not everyone has to, I won't be mad if you, if you don't love it, but uh, if you do love it and this is your jam, please, let other people know it's your jam. <laughs> well, it sounds absolutely exciting, and it's out right now, so you can just pick it up and play around with it. 80% is mm -hmm. still most of the mechanics you're going to interact with anyway, right? So give yeah. it a look. Check it out on Itch. Of course, there's going to be links all over, and there's no point in me reiterating April 15th as the Kickstarter date because you're going to have it in text in front of you when you click on this podcast link, but I just did anyway because <laughs> awesome. the format hasn't evolved since radio. Yeah. So... I was Devin. And Peter. And I'm Eric. And this is sponsored by Nobody, interviewing for Brinkwood, signing off. <laughs>